All right, here we go. So hi, I'm Greg Green here, uh, here with Laird Barron, um, the uh, writer of uh, <coughs> horror and weird fiction, primarily as he's known. Um, and uh, just gonna ask Laird some questions. Laird, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, so uh, let me start with two of my favorite subjects, which are metaphysics and meta-narrative. Um, and in particular, trying to understand the whole body of your work. So I've read through all of your published fiction and I, I, know, I, I know that at least the vast majority of your stories, um, the uh, let's say the uh, cyclorama from James, the James Bond license expired book, notwithstanding, clearly that's in the James Bond world, but most of your fiction falls into the world of old leech. But that world is, um, there are different facets to it, obviously. Uh, so I could put like any given story into, um, I guess, kind of the our world, real world version of the old leech universe. And then there's also antiquity, this dark fantasy universe. Are, how, do you, how do you distinguish those? Are there more than two, I guess, worlds within that universe in your view? I don't want to give a, a complete answer because I think that ruins some of the mystery. I'll say a couple of things. Antiquity, which would be the Rumpelstiltskin, dealing yes. with fables and legends and putting my spin on them. That's essentially the only writing that I do in the weird horror genres that I consider to be supernatural <laughs> in the sense of magic. Yes, Things that yes. probably couldn't happen. You, it could only happen in the imagination. Um, uh, at least in the form, in the form and the format that I, that I bring, bring them forth. Um, <laughs> There, there's almost like an animated quality or animation quality, I should say, to the antiquity stuff. Like when yes. I write those stories, I actually see them in, in vivid colors and, and, and uh, claymation or... Um, the Spy of Night, uh, Ralph Bakshi style rotoscope. Yeah, exactly. Like, I actually uh, figured I was, that was some of my first, I was raised on that stuff. So yeah. that was, I, read, I watched that before I read... Um, the Lord of the I, I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit, the first thing, but I watched those cartoons, yeah, if you want to call them that, these works of animated films, these beautiful yeah. films, before I actually read those. But um, so yeah, the antiquity stuff, I look at that as magic, it's fan, it's pure fantasy. Uh, the rest of it takes place in probably two universes, and who's and they overlap, and who's to say which which is real, which is ours, and which isn't. I don't think it matters. Yeah. I think yeah. one is uh, and one isn't, but which which is which. Uh, and I have a tendency, the reason I don't consider the old leech stuff, for example, or the Imago sequence to be related to fantasy or magic in the same way that uh, like some of my sword and sorcery or high fantasy is because I think that they deal with concepts that we just haven't fully, we haven't been able to put a label on them. We don't know what they are. So there are things bigger than us. There are mysterious forces. And so we have a tendency to call them, we, la we label them. I personally find that they're just this huge playground for me to deal with. I, I kind of have to deal with them. I, I feel like if you're writing, especially contemporary fiction, uh, you have to deal with whether you're a believer, a, a Christian, or whether you're a Muslim, or whether you're an atheist, you're still dealing with civilizations, folklore, uh, th th their, their codes, their customs. Uh, their ethos and mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of how I approach it. I approach it all and not, not in an exploitive sense like in a mercenary sense but more 
how I come to understand, and we were talking about it prior to the show, it's a way of investigating my own beliefs um, or interrogating my own suppositions. Yes, yes. Um, I uh, have, uh, in going through some of the stories, I, I found some connections between the, yeah, I, I know like talking about them as different worlds or something is kind of, um, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, maybe more for folks who like just really care about continuity. Yeah, I used to when I was a Marvel re comics reading kid back in the 80s, continuity was a big deal. Now I'm much more interested in, in the impact of narrative stuff and what that means. Um, but it, it has been interesting to kind of go through and see like uh, even the, the um, Nanashi stories. Uh, Nanashi I saw in the... Um, uh, 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 the short story in the, uh, we use swords in the seventies. He, he is a, works as a custodian for sword enterprises, which kind of connects them in sort of maybe, but, but it's also, there are some details there that make you think, well, it's, it's kind of like the, the real world, uh, but not, uh, not fully or, and, and there's also the, like some of your stories, I think in particular, um, of the novel, The Light is the Darkness and X is for Eyes, is, is, it's just like the writing style. It's like the X is for Eyes is like, a, you know, if, if a, a story was written in the Johnny Quest world and, mm -hmm. and published in Playboy magazine in 1973, that's kind of, that's like what X is for Eyes is. It's so um, just wild uh, in, in what the, the protagonists in particular do that it actually seems to be almost like a, a little bit different from this, like the classic horror stories from uh, Imago sequence, uh, occultation and the beautiful thing that awaits us all. So I didn't know if that's, is that a separate, you consider that a separate world or? I think that it is because in my mind, that world, uh, I have intentions. I don't know if it'll come to fruition. I'm getting older every day, but to follow those two, to have two or three novellas for each decade. So oh, wow. I would have a couple to follow up X's for eyes. Then there'd be a couple set in the sixties and they get, obviously they get older and they're superhuman. By the end of yeah. the first one, they're, they're turning into superheroes. And my, my conception of their reality is it may be a third reality for, or even a fourth reality. There's going to be jetpacks and laser, you know, soldier you know our military is going to be wearing bubble helmets and firing plasma yes, yes. rifles and yet there's going to be this weird retro thing yeah uh that was intentionally written as a pulpy not quite a parody i don't think i've ever really done a parody i've done yeah. satire i wasn't trying to send up pulp i was trying to write it more faithfully like you would get in a men's magazine in the 50s yes. yeah uh, exactly but not a hundred percent i i wanted to still do my own thing with it yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely risque for something that would have been even in a men's magazine. Some yeah. of the concepts in it. It's very there's a certain I injected some cynicism into uh, it, some, yes. some contemporary cynicism. Yeah. Uh, but which is not to say, though, that I was mocking it, but just more of, of an edge, like a little bit more of an edge, an edge to it. But no, it was written. You've read all you've read all my stuff, as you, yeah. you mentioned. It's different. It's always lies of darkness. They they, yeah. they are fundamentally different from almost everything else. Uh, and that was intentionally so uh lies of darkness and i i really should have i was kind of going through a tough spot then so i didn't really have my wits together but if i were to go back and i, I probably will reissue it one of these days um mm -hmm. is it is it, it explicitly make known that it's um an homage to rogers lasney yes there's yes. a reason why the characters speak the way they do there's a reason there's a reason why i use a lot of the language that i use in it 
it was intentional and, and why it's so Byzantine and plotting that had a lot to do with a tip of the hat to uh, my name is Legion mm. roadmarks, th things like that, where there's all roadmarks would be a big one of this immortal yeah. more so than light is uh, the Lord of light was like one of my very favorite novels. Yeah. And I like the nine Prince of Amber. This might have a, a taste of that, but it's more roadmarks and in, in this immortal uh, and, and my name is Legion. And there's just these, these basically Byzantine interconnected things are going on. You never even always know who, what the characters are. They just sort of are in media res. They mm -hmm. come and they go. Uh, and you, you're basically just along for a ride. Yes. And, and yes. that was what both actually both those, both those, uh, the novella and the short novel are kind of uh, designed they they were working at good for good or ill they're working as as designed <laughs> uh, one of the most interesting characters to me is uh, I, i'm not quite sure how to pronounce it it's tom is it mandible mandibole 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 who appears in various forms and avatars uh, across even like in in more dark he appears as a puppet um, mm -hmm. But I think he's in uh, he's in antiquity. He's in yep. X's X's for eyes and mobility. Um, and then he shows up in um, in uh, an Isaiah Coleridge novel as well. And and these are they may be completely different people, but it, it, ma it makes me think of um, the way the uh, Hernandez brothers were doing like the Love and Rockets comics back in the 80s, where the same character shows up in a, in the kind of just normal dramatic slice of life pieces as well as the science fiction stuff and the yep. and very comedic or very serious and they're and you know it's the same person uh but they're used in completely different stories uh but there's something i guess about that character that tom um, mandibole is such a uh it's kind of smarmy and very dangerous at the same time i guess that's maybe the best way to for me to describe them well i will i will say this about man about my philosophy in general I at first I was very studiously lining everything up that I ever did. Yeah. And after a while I said, no, that's the wow. wrong way to do this. This wow. is the wrong way to do this because there's going to be a certain kind of reader that wants to line everything up. Yeah. Well, that's going to frustrate them because it doesn't hundred percent line up. It's a jigsaw puzzle and there are some, it's a 2000 piece jigsaw puzzle, but some of the pieces don't fit correctly. Yes. Or they may even belong to a different puzzle. You can get them in there, but they're, and the reason that I do that is for multiple, multiple reasons. Some of it's stubbornness, but <laughs> um, so, so, so it's a situation where I do play fair in the sense that there is con there's enough continuity that um, if you want to argue on a particular story that it lines up with something you have or within your rights to do so. In other words, I, I try to give different readers cover because i realized that no one even if it's explicit no one ever will 100 percent abandon their position when they believe something yeah and i think it's actually the worst thing in the world when when the eagles go oh hotel it doesn't mean anything or yeah. or you know uh hotel california means this we don't we don't care that's not really we don't want a definitive answer we want you to nod and to go we want glenn fry to go the devil eh well maybe yeah you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right? yes. We want to be able to make it make sense uh, for ourselves. And so much of what we do, and I say we, anybody who makes art, anyone, whether you do it professionally, amateur, on the side, whatever, part of it's a big part of it is the subconscious. You don't create, unless you're possessed, you're not creating out of, of, of you're not creating out of a vacuum somewhat. Yes. 
you're either you're either you're either uh as the greeks would say you're a vessel genius is just a vessel of the gods yeah. you're being you're a filter and yeah, so yeah. uh or you're you're an engine and you're grinding up all you're, you're you're a mill and you're grinding up all that stuff that you eat that you take in and so you can take as much credit or as little credit for everything i take credit for stuff that i didn't intend why because it came out of me yeah. and why did it come yeah. out of me because i put stuff into me yeah good for yes. good or for ill yeah. So what I've decided is that instead of making it all and, and you'll inevitably mess it up, you'll inevitably miss this. <laughs> I decided that it makes sen enough sense that someone who wants to see it that way is correct. Yeah. Not it's OK. No, that they're correct. They're yeah. they're absolutely correct. But there's also enough incongruities and angles that don't meet that there's another interpretation. Yeah. And. I have this love hate affair with coincidence. I think coincidence is something we just don't understand. In other yeah. words, Coleridge says he's come to believe that coincidence, coincidence doesn't exist, but that's partially the writer defending cho artistic choices. Like, well, of yeah. course they yeah. met and they did this because I had to have a meet because otherwise there'd be no story. Yes. Coleridge is, so it's a meta thing. Coleridge is like, is he is aware of his God essentially to some, yeah. to some degree. And he's like, I think this is all part of a plot. Yes. What's that yes. typing? What's that typing sound I keep hearing? But, <laughs> but the other, the other thing is, is I love the idea of alternate, and, and this is this is this is one of the reasons why I do things the way I do, generally speaking, where I'll have Delia. Delia is uh, an heiress in the Coleridge series. Yes. She's a black magician in my antiquity series. She's like one of the worst people alive. Oh, that's right. Yes. That's she's right. a very dangerous. She's yes. a. She's a. She commands. Uh, a, a, a flock of or a cruelty of the flat affect men yes uh and uh she was in a story called or a version of her was in a story called um girls with their faces on yes and there's others uh she keeps reappearing she's not the same person in all of them but she is see this is yeah. the thing sometimes i give sometimes what it is if someone has a specifically the same name as someone else in a, in a different story they're either the same person and i'm just i'm i'm Oh, here's further adventures of this person. Are they just they're they're intersecting with my world again, or they're another version of that person? Yes. That, that's also I love playing with that because that way, I'm kind of saying to myself and and anybody who chooses to read between the lines, I'm basically saying, if not but for the grace of choose your deity, your higher yeah. power, that could have been his fate or her fate. Interesting. Oh, in wow. This, in, in in this reality, and you know that goes back to Zelazny, the idea of the shadow. In this, yeah. you know, it's one of the story starts off. He got he he met a knight who was dying, but he killed seven men. He goes, if I'd walked into a different shadow, the knight would have been unharmed and all seven men would have been dead. And mm. yet another shadow, they would have been laughing over his corpse, et cetera, and so forth. None of them are correct. They're yeah. all they're all equally or I should say they're all equally correct. Yeah. So I so do that a, a lot. Quantum, like a quantum narrative, I guess. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's actually a much more succinct way of putting it is I really have fallen in love with the idea of. Yeah, sometimes they're the same person, especially like in the antiquity stories. Like when I have a storyline, it's pretty easy because I'll give you clues. I'll say, oh, yeah, the last time you were you were following this character, they were a track driver and they're still a track driver. They were a black magician. The last story. Well, they're still, you know, so, you know, that's yeah. the same version of that person where you might get confused is, is Julie five, the true leader versus Julie, you know, or, uh, Julie Vellum, who is a or Julie V, who is also a black magician, along with Delia. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so like who, which, you know. The heiress Delia or the black magician Delia, which is the 
and the, the the thing is is they kind of are the same person they're yeah. just in different they're in different realities and, and, and it was i think it was in the um, i think it's the story the blood in my mouth which is mm. one of your later yeah. stories where yeah. at the at the end of it you've got this this image of the black kaleidoscope and it's like all these different and i started to make this connect and they're actually moving sort of in the story between worlds there's different realities and stuff and they're able to somehow travel between something and i'm just like thinking wait the black kaleidoscope yeah it's like these all these different facets of the same the same world the same base universe yeah. the same souls maybe are are, are, are moving between um yeah. uh and and in looking back at um i think it was strapado no was it strapado yeah there was a, I noticed that there's a character in there named Walter, but he's got an H. It's W-A-L-T-H-E-R. Mm-hmm. Like, that's such a weird spell. Hold on a second. And I went and found Walter Neck in Ode to Joe the Toad. And they're both kind of these kind of um, just big, big personality characters who are kind of rough, you know, just rough edged and and vulgar. And I wondered if there was like, maybe, sure. maybe it's the avatar of, Walter in Strapado is 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 uh, Walter and, Neck, and as I'm sure you know, Stephen King uh, is another person who's done something similar to this. He did it in, in a different way, or I should say, I do it in a different way because it came along much later. But the idea of the territories that we have doubles, mm. you've got the Star Trek mirror. I mean, you, that's why I'm saying we're a product of everything we've ever taken in. Yes, we, yes. Even the, the other thing is, is that one reason that I also have overlapping narratives and I keep, I, I, I will repeat certain things. You'll find phrases throughout all my stories. I'll have certain phrases or I'll even have scenes recur over and over again in stories. Mm-hmm. There's two reasons I did it. One, well, the main reason I did it is because I think it's interesting. If you're, if you're lucky enough to have a career, you get to do, you get to have your blue period and your red period and yes. all this good stuff. Yes. And then, and, and then all your stuff can interact over time. Your art can interact positively or oh, negatively wow yeah that's what that's neat but yes. i became aware early on though that i and i think i probably speak for most writers am a victim and a beneficiary of un- unexamined assumptions yeah i didn't realize until about eight nine years ago how much poe had directly influenced me mm. even though mm. i i never talk about poe i love poe yeah. but i don't but you, you don't talk about the mountain. It's the mountain. Yeah. You walk out, you go out and get your, your well, well water, the mountains there, you know, every now and then you might stop and look at, wow, it's beautiful today. And that's, about, you know, or it's oh, a storm's coming. That's about it. It's there. Yes. It's, it's so big that it's just part of the landscape. Yes. So yes. what I realized though, is that because of him, uh, I am completely obsessed with live burial. How many of my stories had some, allusion to or even a scene of burial in them and how that a a live burial and so what i decided what what that taught me and i started going through my work go wow how many times i have a character do this or that is that part of that's inescapable if you write enough there's only so many ways to put things and our brains we are all really geared toward no matter how versatile we are we are geared for a limited a finite amount of um things that that basically excite our interest. And yes. so like, if you look at Peter yes. Straub, he has written multiple novels about a group of friends who must confront evil later in life. Yes. So is Stephen King. Yes. Uh, but, but Straub more so. Novel after Coco is like that. Ghost stories like that. The Chowder yeah. Society, the Coco, it's the four Vietnam or five Vietnam veterans. And they keep 
instead of Alma Mobley, it's, 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 you know, it's uh, Coco, you know, the, the, that, that's the monster. The point is, is he just keeps going, he keeps going back to it. Years ago, uh, Stephen King, when someone was complaining that, man, you keep repeating these different themes. He goes, you know, if I was, if I were a rocker and I were writing love uh, albums, you know, ballads about love, you would just say, ah, oh, you know, here's his take on this kind of love. And there's no unrequited love. And here's, you know, here, here, you know, here are some ballads about murder ballads, you know, love gone wrong. And you would, you would praise if I were a, a musician, you'd praise me for it. Mm, and so mm. I, I, and he's right. Yeah. If you, as long as you're doing it in a, in an innovative way, not just repeating yourself. And so right. what I decided is you don't wrestle with your influence. You, you, you jujitsu it, you go with it. Mm. You don't try to defeat mm. it. You try You try You're playing. We're not having a real yes. fight. We're sparring. We're we're, yes. we're 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 almost we're interacting in kind of a performance. And so what I decided is, no, intentionally repeat names, intentionally have scenes recur, make them work. Yeah, you're going to do it instead of doing it completely. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sort of unconsciously, be very yeah. conscious in my choices to go. No. Uh, that's why at the, at the in some of my collections, like in the beautiful thing, there's a hunting story that yeah. basically well opens it up, and there's a hunting story right before the end, which I actually I considered having it be at the end, but it just for other reasons that it didn't work. More dark had to be the had yeah. to be the outro. But if you'll notice that they kind of bookend each other, though. There's I think there's even the same amount of if I did it right, there's a, roughly the same amount of hunters in both. And, oh, wow. and what they're doing wow. is because initially I was like, oh, can I have two hunting, these, you know, two expedi expeditions of manly men with no women, you know, it's very similar kinds of stories in one book. And I said, well, of course you can, because it has, as long as it's intentional, yes, as long yes. as you, as long as you are working towards something when you do this. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that. Blackwood's baby and the men from Porlock. Um, right. I hadn't, yes, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, I can't. I can't look at this table of contents because I. I, I have enough questions already to All ask right. you. So I, I... <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, <coughs> that just brought to mind. Uh, there was the, the beginning of uh, one of Neil Neil Young's concerts that was captured live. He starts playing, and someone yells out, "It all sounds the same," and Neil just shoots back, "It's because it's all part of the same song." Um, and yeah, yeah, it is. It's it, he's going to mm -hmm. keep working that same those same questions. I mean, we we struggle with this, you know. Whatever I know, I tell I've told my kids from the time they were pretty young. Lean into what fascinates you. Um, there's sure. some reason that it's there. Why? Because of genetics, uh, the way you were raised. Because God has given you some calling, whatever it is that's, that's in there or all of these things, there's, um, there's something that fascinates you. And that probably has to do with whatever you will uniquely contribute to the world. And of course, then the training is, and let's make that whatever you contribute, something good that like helps people out. Um, one other, just kind of, I guess, within the scope of your stories, um, a, a, a question of metaphysics the, I, I noticed it with um, this last, the last novel that I read of yours, uh, the, the Light is the Darkness, the phrase time is a ring. And that's a refrain that I see quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Am I to take that as, as metaphysical or metaphorical within the scope of the stories that you tell? I'd say both. Mm -hmm. It's, that's one of my, you know, 
they always say don't conflate artists with their work and i think that's a safe obviously i'm not mm-hmm. I, i'm not a big game hunter i was raised hunting and fishing but yeah. sport i don't do it anymore because i don't have to and i abhor um let's just say that i have a, a very righteous hatred for people who go shoot elephants and, yeah. and do things that some of my characters do yes. even if i don't to me good writing is you don't um preach there's yes. a time to preach i mean there's, yeah. it depends if, you, if that's what you want to do but your characters just have to sort of be the character and people have to make conclusions i've been seeing a lot of arguments lately like it's fine to have a really unsympathetic character a character that's you know you know let's say the big game hunter but you got to punish him at some point and make it that needs to be part of the narrative that he's punished i'm like that's not how the world works it's not how the world works not even my fantasy world it doesn't work yeah. that way yeah. Uh, now, I don't think that the evil always prevail either. I think that that's also, a, you know, both ends of that spectrum are kind of ridiculous. But <laughs> I, you know, the, the time, the, the, the time deal is one of my actual um, pet, pet theories. In other words, I'm yes. not sure if I believe it, but it's, I think time is, is, I remember I was reading, I forget what, what the theory is called, but essentially there's all these different ideas about the big bang and what and what's going on with the universe and how it's expanding and that if you were but there was one theory if you can get to the edge of the universe if you could somehow get to the, like, the, the leading bleeding edge of reality yes it's actually you would ha- you it would compress you to you would ba- basically there's it would get narrower and narrower you would actually get flattened yes like if you, if, if you were able to travel in your physical form like yeah. superman zoom yes. out to the edge of the out to the edge of not the universe but just the edge of all creation yeah it, it actually is like a blade yeah, it actually yeah. is almost like a you you would cease to exist because it, there's no room for you to exist there. Right, right. And that was one theory. But the other theory was, you know, how a fountain works. You've got a base of water yeah. and it shoots up, and it looks like a different stream of water is coming out of the the angel's the angel's mouth. But it's just the yeah. water cycling. It's the same water going through. Yes, that yes. was another theory about about the universe. Uh, is that it's constantly going through itself. Like if you if you recycle the water through a fountain or you pull a slinky through itself or a sock, yeah. it just constantly turn, it's constantly turning into itself over and over again. Yes. And that, I can't remember if this was, this was sort of maybe my interpretation, but also that some of the deja vu and some of the weird things that happen with time, that maybe it's not always 100% the same because the slinky moves left or right a few millimeters. It's not always, it doesn't, unless you have it on a machine, it's not machined to going through the same exact, at the same angle, at the same speed. Possibly there's, this time it went through like this and then it yes. maybe it wobbled a little bit. And that's how we could get the idea of free will that there's like, or that, or that determinism versus well, you have some sort of control of your destiny. Maybe you do, maybe you can go a little left or a little right the next time. Yes. But um, so yeah, time is a ring that, that was something that I, that I came up with early and then like very early, that was like third or fourth story. And I also, I was also exploring the idea that the universe isn't, antiseptic that the universe is dirty yeah that it's look at the processes of all you know and there could be life forms out there that are very clean and just made of light and 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 music the celestial you know the the, music of the spheres yeah Yeah. but generally speaking it's all about stomach acids and semen and blood consumption and effluvium and all this stuff yeah and so i was like all right it's it's an organic that the universe is very organic i mean there's even theories that you know that it's a cellular structure which is wow which is you really know, yeah 
that, that, that there's this, because I used to like the idea that a lot of stuff that happens is by, by osmosis. In other words, something passing through a semi-permeable membrane, yeah. something seeping through, whether that's, and I, I think technically it would be a liquid, but the idea is the same though, that gravity leaks in from somewhere else, yeah. that, that, that pieces of our reality are not necessarily nascent to our reality. They, they come in through the, through the wall of whatever the universe is. Wow. And that maybe we're just one tiny little fragment of something unimaginably larger yeah even than our feeble brains can comprehend yeah and uh and so i also said time is a muscle it contracts at the ring like an oh, anus wow yes like that was our sphincter yes not say yes. Anus, but, but a muscle that contracts that it yes and that and the reason that i chose ring and you know i i do have a bone to pick with pizzolato because pizzolato Vic Pizzolatto has his time was a flat circle i'm like right we know where you got that the, the bottom line though is is that it's kind of a in it People like it, but I find it to be sort of an. If I if I had wanted to say that, I would have said that. We were we had a discussion one time on email. I don't know if I explained to him, but I told him when I was a kid, my conception of time of all time being simultaneous and yet dis discrete was that it was from a phrase that God said something to the effect of, "I created time for man. I stand outside of time." Yeah, yeah. I was like, "Huh? What would that look like?" I went, "Oh my God! It's you look if you had a mosaic of movie." Uh, screens or, or tv screens they're all perfectly flat jurassic periods playing on this screen yep. wedged up against it a few million years later you have our time and they're all playing simultaneously so yep. it is true yep. it is true that they're all happening at the same time but you're trapped in your your little flat your flat land i don't know if you read flatland when mm -hmm. you were younger but it mm -hmm. talks about this talks about what like if something comes down from the fourth dimension or fifth dimension into our dimension, what would that look like? What would it, yeah, what would yeah, a being yeah. that had more, more dimensions than us seem yes. like? Which Interstellar and, plays with a little bit. And well, and Ted Chang, Ted Chang plays with that kind of stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. But the point, the point is, so that was my time. So he was like, Oh, time's a flat ring or flat circle. But I'm like, but that's an incomplete view of it. The reason that I call it a ring, the reason I went with that, because there's a fucking hole in the middle of it. <laughs> that's the void. That's yeah. the, that's the unknowable. That's the, the bottomless pit that maybe where everything comes from initially. Where things are, are starting to like use the process of osmosis and coming through right. the membrane. Or, or, or if you fall off that ring, because the ring is the ring can be broken. That's why I have yeah. the broken circle. That's right. That's right. The ring, the ring is when it's working correctly. It's it, time is this is what time does. But who's to say that you can you can smack a ring, you can break a ring. A, uh, who knows that pieces if you're on the ring, you can fall off it. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole, I don't think it matters to really over explain it. Yeah. I chose a ring. I could have chosen a wheel. I could have chosen a circle. Yeah. I could have, I could have done that, but I'm like, no, the, the idea of a ring rings terrifying because a ring is a great unifier. You yeah. slide your finger through a hole. Yes. But it's also, it's also, it, it can signify something far, far more. Um, Inescapability. Yeah, You're and stuck also in this loop forever, right? The, right, and the unknowable, like what, yeah. what, what is this that it's circling? Yeah. So yeah, it's a question I don't think requires an answer. I just think it's more interesting in saying that it's flat and that's what it is. I, yeah. I think that there's a question of mis. There's your mystery. The mystery is what is what are we what are we circling around? Yeah. I hope it's not yes. a drain. Could yeah. be a drain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was wondering if it was um. You know, perhaps related to uh, Nietzsche's idea of eternal recurrences, and we're just like you're essentially stuck in you. Know, you're going to repeat. This is going to be repeated. 
eventually. Like every possible configuration of everything will eventually be repeated. It's also kind oh, of like Buddhism. A, I mean, I, yeah. I could give it, I could, like I said, the idea of standing outside time was from the Bible. Yeah. But the idea of the eternal champion, eternal re recurrence, that could yes. come from, well, from the Bible too, to some degree, but also from, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, other other philosophies. So it's it's like you know, I I am sure that I absorb it from from all, from all kinds Multiple of places. Sources. It's not. That's it's right. definitely. Yeah, my take on it, it's just my take. Yeah. It's the, the the concept is an old, you know, is an old concept. Yeah. Ideas are, are, are real too, I suppose. Yeah. Um. Okay. Awesome. Well, shifting a little bit, just just talking about some broad <laughs> themes in in a number of your works. Um protagonists like Isaiah Coleridge uh, and even Rex, the cybernetic uh, war dog, the last dog on earth, they are, they are brutal, but not brutish. Um, in fact, in both of those cases, these are highly intelligent uh, in, uh, protagonists. They do, I, I'm trying to come up with the words for it. And the words I came up with are like, they live close to the earth. They're close to the line between life and death. Um, how do you think of these characters in their relationship with violence? Um, does their, their prowess at death dealing um, in some way ennoble them? Just tell me a little bit about those, those characters. Yeah, Col Coleridge is the easier to, for me to delineate and to talk about because he comes from a tradition of the Tarnished Knight yeah. Although I, I took it all the way back to uh, the tarnished mythological hero. I, I wanted him to be more reflective of a, what he may be potentially capable of doing, almost the ridiculous punishment that he can take or, or dish yes. out. Yes. Uh, but also just some of his, some of his, his ideas of nobility. Uh, if, if you look at like what Homer was writing about or what you can go to all kinds of traditions, Siegfried, the Norse mythology with Thor, you know, and the unsan the fairy tales, mm -hmm. any kind of yes. lore, uh, you know, that that's old lore. Um, and it's not been sanitized has a tendency to be very brutal. Yeah. Even in its kindness, the kindnesses are, I'll give you a quick death is, yes. is, is yes. their idea of kindness or I won't, I won't screw you over as much as I, you know, I'll just kill you. I won't screw over your family. You know, yeah. that kind of stuff. If you look at Odysseus, Odysseus lied, cheated, oh, he, yeah. fornic he fornicated left oh, yes. and right. And by, by gum, by Zeus, he would have been pretty mad if if uh, Penelope had cheated on him. Yeah, she, you know, while he was gone. Yeah, uh, Achille, Achilles was essentially kind of whiny and petulant. I'm going to go kill 300 people because I'm in a mood now. He's very petulant. Yes. You know, Hector is this honorable man who was doing the honorable thing. There was no question that Hector was honorable, but I'm going to castrate him or drag him by his nuts or, or behind my team of horses after we yes. have a battle. Like no, no honor by our standards, yeah. but by theirs, yeah. it was perfectly. This was all reasonable. Yes. So, Col so Coleridge is a is a person of his time. He doesn't get to be that. I wasn't interested in being that far gone. Yeah. But he's he leans toward his the shadow on his shoulder is the shadow of Achilles and Beowulf and might is right kind of reasoning. And mm -hmm. he's very much he's always he's always struggling with that. I don't think the violence itself is ennobling. I think his his struggle with it to some yes. degree is ennobling. I also think that the paradox is that he doesn't really believe that he can be uh, redeemed. So mm -hmm. I think in some way, and, and a, he wouldn't see it this way, but I, as a writer, see it as 
a saving grace of his is that he doesn't think that he can be saved. Oh, that, wow. That uh, he doesn't, wow. which is a, it's kind of a philosophy I have is that you can, he, he, he touches on, when he talks about, he's talking to Lionel about our relationship with dogs. Yes. Which is pretty, this dear, near and dear. And I have a really complex as someone who used to race dogs. I have yes. a very complex relationship. Someone who used to kill to eat without any thought. Yes. Uh, I, and yet, I'd rather hunt hunters, especially sport hunters than any, and I mean, I would, I would never hunt an animal for fun. Yeah. It, it's all very complicated, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't think that a good deed can wash away your sins. And mm -hmm. I'm talking about in a religious sense. I'm talking about just how you think about yourself, you know? Yes. If yes. You do, if you do bad deeds when you're young and good deeds, when you're older and wiser, which one are you? Mm -hmm. Does it depend on how bad the deeds were? If you, if you're a good person, and a lot of noir, if you'll notice crime and noir hinge on this crime, even more so a good person who gets in a bad situation and they keep the money that they shouldn't have kept or they, oh, they get seduced or whatever. And then just this train wreck of things happen to them. And it seems to mm. be a statement, at least unconsciously by society of which we writers definitely are film, filmmakers, whatever, is that you're only as good as the last thing you kind of did. Mm, yeah. I, yes. I like it. Right. So in other words, if you were, if you're good your whole life, but you mess up and you keep that bag of money, well, now you're a thief or you're yeah. a bad person. You've invited, you, you messed up. We don't look at you in totality, like a, like a jury, like a judge actually does when they yeah. give you the sentence. Yeah. You know, uh, like, you know, like, like society really does at the end. No, but just day to day, we're like, you, that jerk did that. Well, he used to, I don't care what he used to do. This is what he did recently. And so I'm looking at that going, that's kind of what, that, that's kind of how Coleridge feels. He, he feels like he can pay down the debt. It goes back to the dog thing because we can never repay dogs for what we owe them. We're always just paying off the big essentially. Yeah. And so he did a lot of horrible stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like by, and I'm talking about not only by our standards, but by, you know, crime hero standards, anti-hero yes. standards. He, he murdered people. I just don't dwell yeah. on it much. I didn't because I, I really don't think that, um, mainstream uh publisher like putnam they they were leery already of stuff i was doing you can't really you can't go yeah that time that i shot the pregnant lady because the mafia told me to shoot her yeah which he, yeah yeah which he would have he might have yeah the reason we don't go into that is not because i have any problem with talking about that it's because that's not the narrative for mainstream wow crime novels which which, which those were intended to be and which yeah uh they were in some regards the first two yeah uh, yeah but, but yeah, so, so redemption is a big deal. And so it, it, to me, violence, like my personal philosophy about violence is it's just a neuter term. It's no different mm. than saying hammer, fire. Interesting. Right? Surgery. Yeah. The bottom yeah. line is yeah. if you use, I mean, it's pretty violent taking cancer out of somebody's body. Yeah. Heart you, transplant. Yeah. You cut, you cut it out. Uh, SWAT shoots, shoots a terrorist or a gunman that's, that's getting ready to murder some kids. I don't think anybody's going to yeah. argue about nope. that. No. So it's the application of the violence, the violence in and of itself. So, so he looks at violence very much like it's a, it's, it's a club, it's a weapon. It's just, yeah. you know, it's a, how do you use the weapon? Yes. So that's kind of what's going on with him. As far as Rex goes, Rex is really complicated. I don't want to drag this out and go into it too far, but I haven't really been able to do with, I'm having a hard time grappling with Rex because I have a really complicated, um, he's by far him and Jessica Mace are the most complicated characters. Oh, Wow. Uh, they're hard to write about. I love writing yeah. about them. I feel like I failed with Rex so far to really communicate what's going on with Rex, but I'm working on it. Like I, okay. 
I'm kind of, and those stories are almost all, I just sold one to an anthology and it pretty much, there's like three other stories. It pretty much retells that story, but slightly different way. Yeah. And it's like, it, it, because Rex basically, uh, much like the character in the croning, he has memory loss because he's a, he has a positronic brain. It's been yes. damaged. Yes. And so he, he's constantly the little nanobots that repair him can't repair the crack. He talks about the crack that goes through everything. What well, goes through his, it goes through part of his brain. Yes, and it can yes. never be. So he forgets it's, 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 it also is the re the recurring hero, the recurring champion, the eternal champion is that you were here before Rex, you were, yeah. you were fighting this battle before, and this is what happened last yes, time. And now you're, right. Yeah. Amanda Bole is in this, in this latest one. They're having a chat about, oh. about the, you know, being immortal essentially, but oh, my I, goodness, Rex is on one hand, he has human supra human intelligence. Yeah. And, is is a basically is powered by a by a brain by a by a computer brain a consciousness mm -hmm. like an ai yeah but it's in it's overlaid over a dog yes and he cares about the things that dogs care about which is not quite what humans care about that's right and the reason he and, does that's why it's so fascinating it, i haven't really been able i'm really grappling with it part of it is because he's insane and the reason he's, he's not he's not he's he's functionally insane because he's got damage so in other yeah. words what the, what the design was supposed to be is that you have essentially a drone, a, a, a cyborg that has instincts of a dog, the loyalty of a dog and could make, they didn't want, they, they felt like sapient beings uh, can make decisions, abstract decisions that a computer, no matter how intelligent can never right. make. Right. And they were just experimenting. They, and they kind of concluded maybe this wasn't a very good idea. So they wanted to give, give the computer sort of like some sort of input. They're pl they playing around with human beings, but they were also with various animals. The, the implication is there's probably all kinds of cybernetic wow. things yes. out there, yes. but we got our cybernetic dog. He, he exists on multiple realities. Part of him, a large, large part of him exists in a quantum reality. He can expand his size to several tons. He could be the size of a Sherman tank. Oh, wow. Right. Or he can fold back down to a 300 pound dog. Wow. Uh, which I kind of touch on this latest one, but it's like, yeah. I need to really do, do like a novella about him and just go into all this stuff. But the, but the point is that he's at war with himself because he has almost a split personality. The side of him that is a perfectly balanced computer brain that's mildly influenced with flesh and blood uh, emotion yes. versus the terrified hyper-intelligent dog. Yes. And, and now they're coexisting as this, they're not quite split personalities, but they but they they're not working together anymore. There is a sort of yeah, uh, a multi multi layered symbiotic relation, cybernetic it, symbiotics. It, it's hard to write about. Let me tell you yeah. to, to do it, but but I, I, I am going to I'm going to write a, a. I'm thinking about writing a novel about him. Yes. So we'll we'll see. I, and you know, I instead of Isaiah Coleridge, when I think about the um. Well, now he's he's great because he is uh, yeah he's you know well educated and has a, a high moral view and he's lived a, a a very brutal life. But even like um um Conrad Navarro from The Light Is the Darkness, it seems like the his his transformation is toward one who's capability of committing violence is greater and greater and greater. And that's not to say that's all he is about, but it does seem like that, um, uh, yeah, his, the, I guess, yeah, transformation or ennobling of him is one in which he's becoming more capable um, in his uh, ability to fight. 
uh, and, and kill. I think of it in terms of, and I've been playing with this with hallucinogenia. And this, this is not nascent. To, this, this is the idea of, it comes, from, it comes from Christian, the idea that we, you know, that, that we can become, that we come from something much larger than ourselves, that we can mm-hmm. return to it, that there's some kind of, that, that in the afterlife, I mean, I think almost every religious belief in the afterlife, you're transformed yes. into something that it was recognizable, but it's, it's, it's different. It's, it's purer, more glorified, it's, whatever. It, right. And I, and mine has been more like, well, what if it looked like something, what if you can go so yeah. far that it actually regresses you? Yeah. Uh, you become destable. Like you come from, like, if you look at it from a secular viewpoint, if you, you know, like, okay, protoplasmic glop, and then we, you know, electro through, through electric bioelectrical processes, here we are. Well, what happens if that wasn't stable? Basically it's a mutation process. What if the mutation goes too far? So, so, so like in a lot of those stories, the idea is to go as far as you can, but not too far. If you go too far, you become, which is very much from Lovecraft from, right. That's the idea of, or the X-Men. I mean, like I said, nothing comes from a void. It's all from, I see all this stuff and I'm even unconsciously, like a lot of the stuff I didn't realize what I was doing until after I'd done it. And I'm like, oh, oh man, that's yes. what, you know, uh, but, but the process, I've always just thought, you know, the process may not be to a being of light and purity with the wings. It could be, no, you're back to being a puddle. Yeah. You're back to being a, if you go, if you go far enough, you just go right, you collapse, you get right there to, to, to um, divinity and then, or Godhead even, and then boom, you push it too far. And this, and the form like Jenga, Boop, you pull, you just yes, one, two, yes. and the whole thing collapses back to the pile that it started. Oh wow. Um, but with 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 Coleridge, um well, the idea is that I've always I've always planned on if the series was really successful, it's just a pure crime series, just to kind of keep it to never really go too far with it. Yeah. But uh if it wasn't ultra successful and I was sort of just like do whatever you do as you will, I was going to tie it back in with. Well, at least to some degree to with old leech and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Yep. And the idea is that Coleridge is, he's sort of a vessel and mm-hmm. um, he's, he, it's not basically, he's not becoming ennobled by his transformation. It's just that he's becoming more and more in touch with the primordial or the uh, protean. In other yeah. words, it's, it's, it's a force of, uh, I, I want to say nature, but like nature writ large, not nature. Yeah. Like, Oh, there's a windstorm. No yeah. nature. Like, the planet was a ball of fire at one time and yes, you know, yes. it's going to cool to a cinder someday that his, which his... harkens back to his, is it Ma- Maori? Am I saying that? Yeah. Right? yeah Maori, Maori yeah. roots and his, his grandfather, I think it is. Who's, who is this kind of, you know, sort of this deity type figure or, or a figure out of myth and yeah. cause the you know, kind of this cosmic Maori creation story he takes on those dimensions in uh, in Isaiah's dreams, I think, in particular. Oh, right. Uh, his grandfather's in his dreams, but um, basically the dark god Wero keeps yes, appearing yes. in his dream. And that's it. That's it. Who who could you know? So I, like I said, I don't want to give it too much. But, but yeah. the point is, is that I'm with Coleridge. It's, it was different than everything else because I start off with a template, and I was eager to do it. I wanted to write a straightforward. Blood Standard was going to be this straightforward. Um, crime novel with just maybe you know there's always room in in noir for a touch of the occult that's yes yes you know the inexplicable you just don't go too far with it yeah you know uh and, and so the you know signs and portents are a big thing in in um 
I mean, even in No Country for Old Men, I mean, all of McCarthy's work, there's a lot of, was that supernatural? Is that yes. thing that just happened? If you, yes. hmm, or was it, is the world just full of mysteries that you don't have to explain it type of thing? Yeah. But um, yeah, and, and so the idea was to do that, but as time went on, he becomes more of this, I'm really leaning into the, he's, and at first it was going to be Hercules. I was like, okay, he's Hercules. I was like, no, why not Tane, you know, from the Maori religion? And I was like, why any of them? Why not be sort of this embodiment of the, I don't want to say toxic masculine figure, but the tragic masculine uh, her hero who lives by violence. Well, what happens to him? The terrible things happen to him. Hercules, Samson. Achilles. Yeah. Samson even Odysseus. Gets... Well, Odysseus kind of was okay, but I mean, he went through some crap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Siegfried mm -hmm. or Sigurd, Thor, all his buddies. Yeah. You, I mean, it's, it's a tale as old as time. And so I'm like, yeah, I could work. I could kind of work that into uh, into the Coleridge mythos and have him become. Yes. It's sort of a meta. It's sort of a meta thing you know, yeah, in some ways. Yeah. And you know, and speaking of Coleridge, I, another theme I see. It's it's interesting that um, when I uh, was just going back through Old Virginia, which you you wrote in your early thirties, I believe. Mm -hmm. But it's it's preoccupied, and a number of your stories are preoccupied with aging and the impact of aging and the process of aging. Isaiah uh, Coleridge is. He's getting in worse shape with each subsequent novel. And he Absolutely. really, you, you really see that. That's maybe that's the thing I take away most from, from Coleridge is you see uh, such a, a, a realistic and natural progression in his life, in his relationships and the love he has for, uh, for Meg and her, her son, the relationship yep. that they have where he's, He's, he's kind of maybe a little reluctant or con concerned, but he's kind of becoming a father figure, but his own relationship with his body. Um, um, but you were like looking at that uh, when you were still, you know, quite a young man in your early thirties. Tell, tell me a little bit about, about um, the process of aging and, and why that's um, maybe, maybe why that's such a, a prominent feature of so many of your works. It's really strange. The broadsword um, is another good example of that. Well, there's a lot going on with that. It's actually, it's a central, it's, I would say it's central to my work in general, yeah. uh, even though I don't always, obviously in every story touches on it, but it's, it's a, it informs almost everything. Part of it was I grew up really fast living in the woods and was up until the last few years in really, really good shape, but also in very bad shape. In other words, I now have arthritis and I knew I was going to have arthritis. Wow. What was really bizarre is uh, when I was writing about, uh, garland in old virginia he I, I talk about how he's deaf in one ear yeah i went deaf in my ear a few weeks after i wrote that story oh my goodness something like that oh yeah my, my ear my, i was working what happened was i was working at home depot and i'd sold yeah. i'd sold one story a couple of years before this is in 2001 uh that i, I believe i wrote this in 2001 i want to say anyway um what happened it could it could have been early 2000. No, it was 2001 because I remember I sent I sent I finished it. I sent it off to Gordon Van Gelder at Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, and then 9/11 uh, happened five days later. So I yeah. sent it off on the 6th of September, and I wrote it quickly. I wrote it in two weeks. Wow. The reason that I the reason that I wrote it is I just really did not like working at um, the place I was working. It was yeah August. It's 100 degrees out in the brickyard. It was like 90 degrees ambient at 95. And I was working down a brickyard and I just turned to my friend and we were being abused by customers. It was management. It was yeah. terrible. And I had worked like nine days in a row and um, <laughs> oh, I was exhausted. It was pushing yeah. me to the limits. And I just turned to my friend and said, I'm tired of this. 
I said, I'm getting out of here. And he goes, you're not quitting. I said, no. I said, I'm going to go home. I said, I'm going to go right. I said, it's the only way. Because I didn't want to go laterally to some other crappy job, although right. I kind of did, but it was better. But the yeah. point is, so I went home and I started writing Old Virginia. And then my ear uh, burst on me not too long after that. And I don't know. That was a weird. It, it, it like wasn't like been, an accident or something. It just No, it I had a virus or something. I was just walking. Oh, I was walking God. out of the place for the day and I collapsed. Oh my, my gosh. My, uh, it felt like my, from the waist up, I felt like I weighed 500 pounds. I felt like I was made out of lead and I just hit the ground and my friend was walking with me and he goes, you okay? And a little bit of blood came out. And what I found out oh, later geez. is I just, it's a, it's a virus. It happened to Rush Limbaugh is like one of the most famous people it happened to it. Yeah. It, it, it travels up the nerve in your, the nerves oh, in your ear gosh. and it, it kills you. It kills them. Yeah. So, I've always, I've, I, I almost broke my back once. I mean, I, I've never had a broken bone except for my nose. I've broken my bows and my foot. I've broken those, but I have been beaten to rat shit many a time by, you know, boxing, fighting, yeah. getting thrown off of dog teams. You know, you, you name it. I've been stomped by moose. I've, I've had a lot of pain, yeah. but mostly, mostly wasting my youth picking up heavy objects and moving them for other people yeah. eight, 10, 12 hours. Uh, you were a long, longshoreman, weren't you at one point? Uh, fisherman. fisherman. I worked on fisherman. fisherman. I, I worked on, I, I should say I'm processing. I mean, I'm never really a fisherman. I worked on fishing boats and stuff like that yeah. processing, but so I, you know, I beat myself up. And so I had this weird, this idea that age is coming for us. So I, and it comes like, I knew I had a preview from the time I was in my mid twenties. Uh, just running sled dogs, 40,000 miles on the back of a team that beats up your body. My shoulders yes. are all, you know, yes. the, the pounding that you take, not eating right, the whole nine yards. Uh, so I knew what was coming. I, I knew that when I hit my 30, my, my 40s and 50s, I was going to pay because I already started. There was a, I injured my back so badly during the tree, one job that uh, tree service job that I literally could not sit down without or stand up without assistance for about a year. Wow. Oh, my, wow. My wife at the time had to, like, I was, I, I was in the chair. People who've had bad backs, what I've talked about, it wasn't like, oh, it hurts. It was vomit. Like, if you move wrong, you'll vomit. Uh, oh, oh, and wow. So, and so what happened is my, one of my uh, discs, my back, lower back burst, and it was just floating around. Oh, my goodness. My, I've my, never even heard of that. Yeah, she happening. screamed. She touched my back. And she started screaming. And she goes, and so I felt around. It was like a gelatin pack in my back. Oh, and man. So the, so the bottom line is it took me about two years to recover from that. I was in a, yeah. And so I wrote my novel, my first novel while that was going on. Yeah. But the point is, so I had this relationship with pain. But there's, there's another thing that's going on is that people overlook uh, the capabilities needs, wants, desires of people past a certain age. Yeah. Heaven forbid that Hollywood shows two people with gray hair getting it on. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, oh, she wants to have sex. How gross. Right. That's that's literally how they or. Well, how could this guy be a threat or how could this old woman be a threat? I'm like, well, Roald Dahl could tell you how the landlady yeah. put a little arsenic in your in your tea and see how smart you are. Yeah. No, it, it, like I said, once again, it's not a new thing. It's not nascent to me. I just said, let's make old people relevant. Yes. Yes. Uh, because it, nobody was really doing it at the time. I mean, I'm not saying nobody was doing it, but it just wasn't like very popular. Not only did I want to make I didn't I didn't want to fall in the trap of, well, all old people are evil. I wanted old people just to be, or people, I shouldn't say old, but people that are not traditionally featured and centered in the arts, especially noir and uh, yeah. action oriented. Cause I write very action oriented. I'm like, why can't 
why can't the old people be screwing? Why can't yeah. old people be doing what they do in real life? They're not all nice, tidy people. And, but they're also not all a bunch of crackpots. They're people. Yes. And so yes. Um, I just, I kind of, I kind of fell into doing that and I still do it. And yes. now I'm getting there myself. Did you see the, uh, the film, anything for Jackson? No, um, it's, it's yeah, on my it, list. It's, it's a, it was a complete surprise to me uh, coming out last year. I totally enjoyed it. And it, yeah, it's the two protagonists are an, a, a much older couple dealing with a very difficult situation and they take some extreme measures to, um, you know, pursue their objective. Uh, and then they're both, the characters would be in their mid to late sick, mid, mid sixties, probably. Um, and the seeing the relationship between them as they, as they take these extreme measures is, is really, uh, really fascinating. Um, but yeah, I used to even think about the, the characters, the, the, um, the man from, um, is it Joran Falls or Joran Falls? Joran Falls. Joran Falls, you know, yeah, this is, this is a couple who are in there. Uh, yeah, they are, they're retired now. Uh, and there's some sex in it. And there's some, you know, yeah, uh, just yeah, dealing with old age and uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, uh yeah, you, you're representing people across the spectrum of their lives. Um, and uh, yeah, it, there's just yeah, this this sense of kind of the encroaching doom of you know of death of getting age, but not from any just horrific uh, means, just just uh, just aging, you know, right. heading heading toward that end. Um, tell, one of the things I've just found most fascinating, I'm a, I'm a cat dad. I've got three cats and a couple of outdoor cats or side cats, as my kids call them. That's the thing to call them now, side cats. Um, but um, yeah, I grew up with dogs. Um, but your relationship with dogs clearly is, you know, it shows up in, in your work in a number of ways. Uh, and I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, about dogs and your relationship with dogs. I'd love to hear a little bit about what the Iditarod running that three times and training for them, how that um, shaped your view of dogs, your relationship with dogs. Um, I, I, you know, I think the dog characters in your stories, um, as much of a view as we <laughs> get of them, Rex being the probably the, you know, the most uh, intimate view we get as the protagonist, but your, your dogs seem to be a lot more noble than most of your protagonists. Um, I, I wonder if you have some thoughts on, yeah, what, what is it, what is it about dogs that draws you to put them in your stories and to include them in your life? And are they, um, uh, uh, are they better than human beings, I guess? Yeah. You know, people, well, first of all, well, I, I guess I should answer that cause I'll, I'll lose it. Um, I actually don't think that they're better than human beings. I just think that they're, they're perfect examples of what they are. And much more than more so than the typical person is a good, a good example. In the Arist, you know, in Aristotle's uh, sense of the word, you know, a hammer's a hammer's good when it's doing what a hammer is supposed to do. Yes. And a human being, a human being is good if and when a human being is doing what a human being is supposed to be doing. The question is, what is a human being supposed to be doing? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so my pre my biased opinion is that some human beings are great, whether they're good or bad, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But I think a lot of people aren't. And um, dogs, though, are almost always perfect at it. They literally are perfect at being at being dogs. <laughs> and I feel like, um, like I said, I have a complicated relationship with them. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, the Iditarod is not something I miss or would ever want to do again. Yeah. Um, I've been asked this many times, you know, do you miss 
you miss run, having sled dogs. That's really the only thing I'm, I don't miss the, I'm glad I raced the race. I think once would have been fine. Yeah. I, I wouldn't trade my, any of my experiences in, I might do them differently, but I, I wouldn't like trade them in because they, they are my, a lot of my identity was forged from doing this. I'm a mm -hmm. different writer, a different person than I would have been. I think I'm probably a better person mm. uh, for all my mistakes and, and experiences that I had, but I do miss the dogs. Mm. Um, I could never go back to that life. I, I, I have a much more uh, ambivalent and ambiguous relationship with the idea of how we treat animals than I did when I was growing up. When I was growing up, I was raised par partially religious, but also just practical their animals are are there's people then there's animals yeah. and you try to be fair yeah. but they're second they get short shrift compared to people and that's how i was raised it wasn't even a question of arguing that one that was just how it was it was pounded into my head but as time has gone on i've come to more look at you know animals as that we're uh especially especially domesticated animals like dogs and cats that were their stewards I look at them like, you know, yeah. I'm childless, but I look at it kind of, I, I've worked in uh, public education with, with little kids, actually kids of all ages. And I, I realized that there's this complex relationship. It's kind of similar. The responsibilities aren't as great in the societal sense. Although I, I think being in charge of some, someone or something's life is a pretty awesome responsibility, no matter whether it's human or whether it's not. But the point is, is that I, I started using the word steward. Yeah. I kind of feel like- It's a great word for it. Yeah. Parents are, they don't own their children. Yeah, they're their stewards. Right. They're responsible. Yes. Yes. And that's kind of how I look at dogs. That's how I look at animals. That's how I've come to really look at dogs. Um, I, you know, I, um, I don't know. Dogs are, they're kind of been bred and cultivated yes. to sort of be aug an augment to human endeavor. Like dogs are yes. happiest when they're with you doing what you want to do. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, if, if it's the right breed and they've been trained properly and fed and everything's proper, they're happy, whether it's pulling a sled out chasing quail yeah. or sitting on the couch, watching TV with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all animals and human beings default state, including marathon runners is I'd rather just watch NASCAR this weekend <laughs> rather than go do, but, but the bottom line is I, I certainly would rather do a lot of other things than write but writing is certainly my calling. Yeah. So, so the, the bottom line is, is that um, dogs have a tendency to uh, they're happiest when they're with you as your partner yes. and, and whatever degree that you allow them to be your partner or expect. Yes. And dogs also like children, human children, they kind of rise to the expectations that you put on them. If you don't expect anything from them, you'll get yeah. You'll get a cow, you know, you'll get a dog that's sort of indifferent. Although this is where dogs are more perfect. They have a tendency to default to I love you and you know, no yes. matter what. Yes. But but you I had a different relationship with my Athena, my rescue pit bull that I had. I got her actually. We got her about a week before old Virginia came out in 2002. Oh, she was wow. the baby. My relationship with her changed after I got divorced and moved from the uh Pacific Northwest over here to New York State. Yeah, because we did this. She was seven and a half, almost eight years old. So I'd had her for all these years. Yeah. We were really good friends. Our relationship changed when we took that road trip together. We went, we stopped in Montana for a few months. Yeah. Like about eight you, months. You lived in a cabin, right? It was like your yeah. brother owned a cabin, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it was Walt Disney. It was up in the mountains. Wow. And wow. you could drive to it, but only if, if the road, if it was a logging road. So if it wow. snowed, you couldn't, if it was rainy, wow. you couldn't Like the road would get too muddy, you know, yeah. on and on bears in the backyard, the whole 
and our, and then we and then we we stayed there. I wrote most of the crowning. I wrote uh, I wrote several of my big stories. I wrote more dark while I was sitting in that little cabin. Wow, we're not going to cabin way smaller than this little uh, bedroom office that I've got. It was yeah. literally just this little cubicle, and I was happy with it. Wow. I would get up and I would go out and, and run around with my dog, and and look at uh, elk and you name it. The, the you know red tail hawk circling us when we're out walking. Yeah. And then I'd come in and I'd write and I'd write and I'd write. And I did that for about 18, 20 hours a day is I go for walks with my dog, come in and write Wow. and just alternate. But yeah. our, our related, then I wrote, uh, old, I, I wrote, um, hand of glory while I was you, there. You wrote a poem, I think about that called yeah. the, Elf. is that right? Well, it's very it's not about it, but it's, it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly another version of me that the author is certainly another version of me. Yes. Yes. Uh, but, but the hand, hand you said hand of glory was hand of glory there. i wrote it while i was there I, that was a busy summer i wrote yeah i wrote several oh i also wrote um i wrote one other thing and then i wrote most of the novel like 95 percent of the novel i finished it when i i had to finish like the last you know 50 pages when i got here to new york but the point is my relationship changed with athena mm. it transformed after because she was she we'd never been on a road i had never driven that was 2300 miles it was yeah a, terrifying you know my, i don't my truck was going to make it it was this old beat up truck oh wow um and she did not know what to make we were going through chicago middle of the night and the wind was blowing the truck sideways it was bumper to bumper traffic she climbed up on me i was trying to read a map and go through bumper to bumper traffic uh, i remember talking to a police officer he's like there's no good time to go through it always be like that so i said yeah. okay and <laughs> when we got here our relationship was never this it was never the same it had there was something different about our relationship it was way better Way deeper. What, what was it? I mean, there's a, a knowing of each other in yeah. some way. Like she, she understands um, more about about she, you. Well, you find out about yourself when you travel. Yeah. Right. Don't they yeah. say that's one of the great things? If you ever before marrying somebody, you know, go travel with them, or, or yeah. even if going business, they, they say that about like any kind of a. It doesn't have to be a carnal relationship. It could be any. Before you go, to, you know, go go do a week long trip with with someone if you can and see what they're like. Yes. But we um, we bonded more deeply wow. and uh, there was just something there was just something really magical about it and uh i had the same thing with with my sled dogs they were not pets i loved them but they were i had a completely different relationship but it was all or nothing it was live or die together we would have done i would have yeah. you know i got stomped by a moose once because i wouldn't you know get out of the way wow. The, the, wow didn't even think about it it wasn't bravery it wasn't like yeah. oh i was no i wasn't they're my, they're my pack. I'm not going to yeah. leave. I'm not going to, yes. if, if they get stomped, I get stomped. We, we, if we, we went through the ice one time and I didn't, you know, I stayed with them and we, we were very lucky, but um, it wasn't conscious. It was just like, no, you, this is your pack. And I felt like after we made that trip, Athena and I were a pack as opposed to just master oh, wow. and, and pet. Yes, we, yes. we were, we were more partners. Yes. And um, it, yeah. And so she started appearing in all my writing, my writing, I'd written about dogs before, but also, you know, by the time I start writing about Rex and the Jessica May stories and Coleridge, you know, Athena was getting old, much older and yeah. kid, you know, the difference between a dog and a kid is kid grows up and goes to, you know, for most of us, the kid will grow up and go to school Yeah, and they bury us. Um, yeah. Your dog dies, your yeah. cat dies. Yeah. That's what you, that's what your reward is at the end of 15 years is you lose, you yeah. lose them. And so, Luckily, I'm a writer and I could immortalize her, so I did. Yes, yes. I, th I think uh, Minerva appears in it references Minerva. I think. Well, you've got Minerva Athena, right? I mean, that's yeah, yeah, and Achilles and um, 
Yeah, and Minerva appears in many stories. Athena's never, I don't, I'm trying to remember if I ever put Athena. I don't think I, I think I had her in a story and I took her name out and changed it. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's so complicated relationship. Um, I have a much more ambivalent feeling about animals and sports than I used to when I was a, when I was a kid, horse racing, you know, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm not, I don't think I could ever quite become the hypocrite going, no, it's all evil and wrong, but it's not for me anymore. Like yeah. I'm not interested in, I'm, you know, I don't have a problem with other people uh, if they want to race dogs or if they want to um, go bet on the Kentucky Derby. I kind of acknowledge that that's, uh, that's a thing and it's yeah. a cultural, it's a cultural, but I'm at a point now where I'm, I won't denigrate it, but I, I don't participate in it anymore because I don't feel comfortable anymore. I don't feel, I don't feel, um, I don't know. I, like, I feel like I could have a dog team if we were just going to go travel. Like if we were, yes, if, yes. If, they, if I had six dogs and they all live in the house with me and then we would go <laughs> out and I'd hook them to a set of skis or a little a light sled and we just go travel together. Oh, I would yes. miss that. Yes. But I would never, um, and not because it's evil or anything, but just because I, I don't have the, I don't have the interest anymore. And, 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 and making dogs or uh, any other animal, like I, I'm really nervous about how we use, we use German shepherds in crime detection and in um, mm. warfare and stuff, because yeah. to me, it's not simple. It's not so simple as, well, they're dogs. And that's what we do. Right. Or they're dolphins. That's what we do. I'm like, well, it is what we do. And maybe there's an argument to be made that it's better that basically it, it's a lesser of two weevils as yeah. Russell, or Russell, uh, Russell would say, but <laughs> um, it's not for me. And I, yeah. I, I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm wrestling with that. I think that what I just want out of what I want out of like our dog here, I just want her just to be happy and be a pet. Yes. That's, what, that's her job. Her yes. job is not to defend the house, although she will bark. Her job is not to pull a sled or go hunting with me or anything like that. If she wanted to do those things, great. Her job is to live a life and my yeah. job is to be her steward. Yeah. And I think you see that. You see that in the writing. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Her job uh, to be a dog, to be yeah. perfectly a dog yeah. is to be your companion. She doesn't have to pull anything or, or flush anything out of the, out of the bushes or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and our, and our job has to be not to prepare them for life, but to be here for them till the end. That's, yeah. you know, despite our grief that this is what we do for them it's the, yeah and like Holward says it's the least we can do yes yes let me um change gears a little bit um talking about craft influences and form um the evolution of your narrative style over the years it, it seemed to me like um like uh in imago sequence occultation <laughs> and the beautiful thing that awaits us all you know i think of those as like these just mostly the, just the horror classics and the, the narrative style seems like fairly set within those stories, though the story occultation is very, there's just something very strange happening there. It, it seems not experimental, but much more evocative than narrative, I guess. But then when, when I got to reading Swift to Chase, I was just very surprised uh, and, and very moved by how different the, the writing style was, it's, I, I don't know, is, is, how would you describe it? More conversational, more, I don't know, there's just such a shift in the style there. Uh, in fact, I, I kind of come away with it thinking this, it's a more feminine style. 
it relates more to Jessica and um, the the other uh, uh, who's the uh, the cheerleader's name again. It's um, oh Julie Vellum. Julie Vellum. I mean, yeah. there's such key figure, really the the lead characters in so many stories in Swift to Chase. Can you tell me a little bit about that kind of the the intention you had in in the change of style there? Was it something that was very intentional, or or was it something that just kind of was a natural progression of your writing? It was intentional. Um, I felt, you know, and I'm not saying I'll never return to it. I think that'd be foolish. But yeah, I felt like with those three books, with the exception of each 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 of the first three collections had, you know, prior to Swift to Chase, had one or two stories that were sort of outlier type stories, and I used to say I put them in there to kind of point a little bit toward the next collection of how it's yeah. done because each collection was slightly different. Yeah. Um, but Swift to Chase, I owe a lot to Jessica. She changed my thinking being around her, my new scenery, basically, you know, being divorced and, and my life completely as anybody's ever been through any kind of thing like this, whether it's you're a widower, whether you're a divorced person, you know, whatever, it's a huge change in your life. It's yeah. an upheaval. Yes. And, and then of course the traveling, the traveling was, you know, from one end of the country to the other. And, um, I felt like my writing, two things were going on. One, I had pretty much done what I wanted to do with the mm -hmm. love, with the explicitly Lovecraftian, like the, the kind of the way that those, those stories are generally structured within those collections and what they do, <laughs> what they deal with and how they deal with it. Uh, I kind of felt like, all right, I, I've, I won't say I played out, but I've, I've done what I wanted to do. Yes, yes. Maybe even more so than some people would have liked. <laughs> and, and what I learned is you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you keep writing in a certain way, it's what King and Straub say that you know, you're just repeating yourself. Yeah. I'm bored. If you change, it's like, what is wrong with you? I'm never buying another. I've had that. I'm not buying oh, I'm any sure. more of your books. I'm sure. I can't believe that Swift to Chase and blah, blah, blah. You know what? That just, you know, that's fine. Um I knew this was going to happen, but I give credit to her, I, or, uh, Jessica M. And I also give credit to John Langan, hmm. Stephen Graham Jones. Um, I'm a huge Stephen Graham Jones fan. Yes. Yeah, what happened too. is I was trying to, uh, I writing for a long time when I moved over here and I'd had three, the third book, the third, fourth books came out pretty shortly after I moved over here back in 2011. But uh, I had no safety net at the time for writing, not no savings, no nothing. And yeah. so I was renting a room from John Langan and his wife, Fiona, uh, and with their kid, their son, David. And I, so I had this little room in the back and that's where I was for about three years. And uh, wow. writing, I got more writing. I did as much writing in those three years as I have in my entire career. Just wow. About. Wow. And, uh, but I remember John and I would have these late night sessions because we, I had my dog, he had he got more and more as time went on, but they had like three of theirs. So that we're walking our dogs <laughs> and we walk them four or five times a day, like constantly wow. every, every three hours we take them out yeah. and we would walk to the end. And he has this really kind of nice suburban country, country style neighborhood. And so we would walk up this hill and walk back and we would talk about uh, writing. We talked about everything, but we talked about writing a lot. And John is one of the great writers in the horror yes. weird oh, fiction yes. field. He's yes. not just a writer. He's like one of the, 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 the greats. Yes. Uh, Stephen Graham Jones, you know, since I mentioned him, he's one of the greats. Uh, I think Jones may be in the top two or three that we have working in America right now yeah. of, of all writers. Yes him, yes. him and Kelly Lank, Jeff Ford, people like that. Yeah. But, the, but the bottom line is, I said, you know, man, one of the things that I've never been able to do 
uh, is right quickly. And I still can't, but I need to up the, what can I do to up the pace a little bit? And we talked about Stephen Graham Jones. Now, Stephen Graham Jones has the Harlan Ellison talent, which is he can sit down and type a story in an afternoon and, it, and it's quality. Yes. That'll never be me. And we're not talking about 2000 <laughs> words. We're talking about, you know, here's an, like, I think he wrote the long trial of Nolan Degotti, like, which is like 30,000 words or something. And he wrote it like 24 hours or something. Oh, that'll never, that will never be me. Wow. Wow. That doesn't, that doesn't mean though, just because you can't be Muhammad Ali doesn't mean that you can't learn to move your head when somebody punches at you. Yes. Like, Oh, I got the idea. Yeah. All right. And you, <laughs> and you give him a left, a stiff left back. Right. Yes. Okay. So I kind of feel like I could never be, I could never be um, Steven, but I could take some lessons from him. And there was certain, there, I'm not going to go into it, but I observed yes. certain things that I perceived that he does with his, with his writing. And so I said, I, I didn't want to sound like that, but I, but it was the, it was a mechanical process. And I went, yes. huh, I have a tendency to over, I think a lot of my writing has been overwritten over the years. Like I'm way too polished or way too, way, spending way too much time on certain things. And so I became much looser. Oh, uh, and that's okay. where the conversational element in some yes. ways is denser, like the, it becomes, there's much more nuance going on in the stories. There's much more, there are things that are going on in the stories that never really were in my first collections, but the, the mechanical nature of the stories, how they get onto the page and how you perceive them, how the average reader perceives them is very informal and very conversational and very, like in this case of Jessica Mace and Julie Vellum, almost, almost stream of consciousness. This. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, and I don't worry too much about. I, I've even had editors just recently. I wrote a Jessica May story, which is a sequel to Joran Falls. She ends up in that Wonderful. house. Oh, into that. oh my gosh! Oh yes. wow! Somebody buys that house, and she ends up there, and there's a th there's something going on. Oh, so anyway, oh. they were. I, I let the corrections stand, but they made some corrections, and I looked at it and went, oh, yeah, it's it's the rough way that she because Coleridge everything is fairly, even though it may be conversational. It's pretty polished how I yeah, generally yeah. it's polished in its informal informal nature. Jessica Mace, she'll she'll use kind of weird, like all malaprop, you know, isms and things like that. Yes. Yes. And they were like, oh, this is kind of I said, that's fine. Take it out. Whatever. But the point is, it's very rough. I don't I don't over polish anything. She thinks it's all in her head. Yes. I don't uh, I don't over polish. If she wants to be if she wants to, you know, have a you know, a little a little soliloquy and it's kind of like rambling. I let her do it. Uh, that, because it's not the amount of words that slows you down in a story. It doesn't take me any, it doesn't take me really much more time to do an 8,000 word story than a three or a four. It's the polish level and what like the precision. Mm -hmm. So if I'm speaking mm -hmm. from the point of view of Coleridge and, and to a much greater degree, Jessica Mace, I just let it come out. Yes. And then I just polish it to make sure that it's, that you can comprehend that it's basically grammatically correct enough that you know what's my voice and what yes. the, and what her voice is that's yeah. way easier to write uh yeah. i've had poems that take me two or three years to write wow. the more precise the more precise your language yes i have found it's like trying to work in detail right working in detail is way harder than slapping paint the side of yes. a, a canvas uh yes. they, they both take if you don't have talent they're just slapping paint i mean there could be an intention here but one is it's, it's easier to paint in broad strokes and you can use a lot of paint in a short amount of time, but you're trying to paint in detail. You're going to be sweating and it's, it can take you yeah. forever to do a good job. And so that's yeah. by and large, it's kind of what happened with Swift, all those stories in Swift to chase. They're all more narratively, even though uh, I've done it in the past, they're all more free 
kind of loose and uh, free, you know, sort of free flowing and, and how they uh, are, are, are created. Um, I, and the experience of reading Swift to Chase, it was like going back to high school for me. I mean, I, I felt like I, it, it just feels like you're sharing stories with friends and, yeah. And, and this, the, you had this group of friends, you know, it's, it's very much like that. Yeah, the experience of being there. I thought it was, I thought Swift to Chase was fascinating, but it was just, yeah, such a different piece. Uh, uh, the whole uh, set of stories that were so different from what had come before. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, at um, one point I was just going to make it before, because I wrote X's for Eyes right in the middle of that. So really, something I'm very proud of is that I can switch into... I don't have a mode. I have, yeah. I have, I have, I look at it like martial arts. Yeah. I went to a school where I learned it was a very, very small um, suite of moves. Like most martial arts schools, they have anywhere from two, three to 4,000 moves, yeah. something like that. You may not learn them all, but that's like, if you were to break it down, the, the thing that I studied for years, it was very much a street. It was just self, just pure street self-defense. There was no, uh, there was no, um, sport component to it there was yes. nothing you know, yes. uh, like 800 moves and then wow. and then and what i was taught is it's the bruce lee to fear not the man who does ten thousand sidekicks fear the man who or knows ten thousand techniques know the man who who has done one technique ten thousand times yes and, yes and so i look at that with, with my writing i'm not going to be able to uh carve out a niche in dozens of different styles yeah uh but I could pick more than one or two. And so I, what I have is I have about four or five. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. So X is for eyes. If anybody who reads Swift to Chase and you read X is for eyes, you'll, and also I wrote uh, blood standard right then too. Really? Blood standard was written in 2013. Wow. Andy Kaufman cre creeping through the trees. is like yes. 2013, 2014. Yes. Uh, uh, X is for eyes was written in 2015. So I wrote them all. I was, and you can't, to me, blood standard X is for eyes. Are completely different stylistically yeah and of course julie vellum and jessica mace is different you can see i mean you, it's the same guy writing them there's not a yes. question there yes but it's like singing it's, it's like singing falsetto tenor like you can do i could do different beatboxing i i yes. felt like no one else will ever care about it i for me it was a personal accomplishment to be able to shift from access for eyes back into writing jessica mace oh and have absolutely be, it is yeah yeah and, and yeah no to be able to do that and do it competently and you end up publishing the stuff and and it's you know it, it it's received and it has its impact right uh, and another another one is the the <coughs> nanashi work the the man with no name and then yep. uh uh we use uh swords in the seven right 70s yep and we use swords in the 70s uh, from this wonderful little tome here, the Weird Fiction Review number nine. Oh, yep. it's just, it's so beautifully, um, I mean, just paper even just feels wonderful. It's got a cool, cool cover. But um, yeah, I mean, what I, I did want to ask just a little bit about the influences uh, uh, for those stories, because, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, a, a Japanese Yakuza type world. Uh -huh. Um, and uh, to me, it felt like, and I think we had a little Twitter exchange about this, but it felt like a, like Japanese cinema was, you know, some of the source for this, but yeah. tell, tell me about, yeah, what inspired, um, that character, that world and what, what, did, what drew you to that? You know, you're not supposed to necessarily <laughs> take anything like this away from the story. You're supposed to just read the story, but 
my um and of course i wrote them several years apart i wrote we used sword in the 70s five or six years because i wrote uh nanashi uh man with no name i wrote that like in 2012 or something mm -hmm. uh so there's like a five or six year gap between them but uh my thought about the man with no name is it wasn't supposed to be some sort of faithful examination of how the yakuza work it yeah. was supposed to be a lot in a lot of ways a kid because i grew up on this kind of stuff but basically yeah. a white kid grew up in america relationship with those types of films coming over here and so i wanted to do a horror crime story that owes far more to the fantasy world of the yakuza than any kind of because in reality yes. they're pretty boring yes uh, much like the mafia like yeah. my mafia my my italian and irish mo mobsters over here in russia are far more owe to the fantasy world uh, view of them. And I'm unashamedly, I don't want yes, to write yes. I, I'm not Joseph Wambaugh or Puzo. I'm not trying to write, you know, I'm not a true crime guy. I'm trying to write, look, these are the movies and some of the film or some of the books and things that inspired me. But I grew up like uh, with, you know, I think we all did watching the action films. And mm -hmm. when I was in my twenties, you know, got into Kurosawa, uh, also and then more recently like in the 90s i started watching asian like korean and japanese horror yes and drama yes, which yes. sometimes it's very there's a little distinction between those uh genres and i wanted to write though i wanted to write a story that was uh how should i put this basically an homage to the the the, the cinematic version of, of uh like action movies and things like that yes and yes. so that's where that's where i'm coming from with, with that one the the sequel is nothing is nothing like that the sequel is basically more of a is a night is a nightmare it's yeah, kind of a nightmarish yeah. which i'm still i actually am going to use some of that stuff for my i'm working on a horror fantasy novel right now and some of those characters will be in it but i love the idea of the feud between kurosawa and mifune and 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 doing and doing this fantasy this this sort of fantasy horror alternate universe thing about what really happened between the two of them yeah. because um this had nothing to do with man with no name although it had a lot to do with with the the sequel john langan and i when i moved over so i lived with him for a while now i live about 15 miles away yes. the, up against the catskills live on this little piece of property we rent we rent the top floor of this big old uh a big old split level house we've got four acres trees out one window, the Catskills, there's a dairy farm. It's pretty Norman Rockwell. And up until COVID, I would go over to John's house pretty much every week, especially, you know, like about nine months out of the year when it wasn't heavy snow or whatever. Uh, and we would watch a movie. And it would either be a TV series like Fargo, we'd watch that together. Yes, yes. Archer, we'd watch Archer together. Yeah. Or uh, if those weren't happening, like at summertime, we would go on... Uh, Okay, let's watch a bunch of Kurosawa. Let's watch a bunch of Ingmar Bergman. Let's watch, which I guess that's kind of a weird non sequitur, but not really because Kurosawa and Bergman are the same. They both are these, they can be this very austere, yeah, uh, kind of a, they are, you are the camera looking at everything. And there's like a, there's like a political and meta element in all their work that you just have to go, huh? They're entertaining us, but they're also making us think. So, we would we would watch all this stuff and that and that really has had an effect on me yes. uh, although you, you you might not see it in most of my writing but it certainly affects some of the philosophy uh espoused by coleridge and, Ro and lionel robard for example mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well the, the um 
uh, the conversation and uh, we use swords in the 70s from yes. this weird fiction book. Well, yeah, but talking about well, Kurosawa has a fake arm. Yeah, that's oh. I, it's well, what, it's, what that, it's, right, what that came from. We watched um, so one of the things that John and I did, I just treasured, we watched two documentaries. One was about uh, I always get his name wrong, but John Milius, the guy who the screenwriter for Apocalypse Now, yeah, yeah, 1983, and how he was so. And, I one time told somebody this, I said, I want to be, I'll never be a successful, but I want aesthetically, I want to be the John Milius writers. Yes. I can write the Lagerstadt, which is a literary story yeah, or something weird like 30, but over here I can give you, no, here's just a plain, this is a chase of these, these loggers are getting chased through the woods by, by Cthulhuoid monsters. I want to be able to do it, do both. I want to be able to write a pulp story. And that's what John Milius did. He did Red Dawn, for goodness sake. Oh, but he also wow. did Apocalypse Now. Yes. I, I love him more for the fact yes. that he go, oh, are we going to be down in the dirt? Are we going to roll around the mud and, and glory <laughs> in, our, in our pulp? In our low, how low can my brow go? Oh, yes. you want me to lift it up and do something elevated? Fine. Yeah. Your money, you're, you're paying me. And wow, I was always like, wow. so we watched that together and it was just, it was, it was fascinating. But the one that got me and the one that led to that story that we've been discussing, uh, is it was about the relationship between Kurosawa and Mifune yes. and how they were sort of symbiotic relationship. And then they had a falling out and we're pretty much, I don't know that they ever really, I mean, they kind of reconciled, but not really. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the whole conversation about, well, what really happened is, you know, and, and their, and their feud took a violent turn and then a creepy turn. I'm going to do more with that. I very much. Uh, I just, I, I love that element. And that to me just seemed like such a, um, a, like something that I would actually see in a Japanese movie, you know, that kind of di that moment where these guys, they could be shooting each other, shooting other people. Or, no, they're talking about does. Oh yeah. He's got a fake arm, you know? Oh, these two greats of their culture, Kurosawa and Mifune, they were butting heads. It just seemed like a, I guess it sounds like something Tarantino would have written years later. Yeah. Oh, sure. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and, and but really more than anything out of the, the you know, the man with no name, of course, is this looking at this uh, Muzaki character, right? Retired wrestler and their adder and how how adored he is because he was a world famous pro wrestler. He's based uh, on a real person. Really? Yeah. There, uh, he's uh, several, but there, there yeah. was um, I, I don't want to go too far into it. But basically, sure, sure, sure. when I was doing my research, he. There was a professional wrestler, I want to say in the 50s, who had like dual citizenship, but he eventually ah. he was this huge wrestler in Japan. And they're wrestling, I don't know, 100%. It was still K Fabi up, up, up the, to the hill, but people still, I think there was a little more reality to some of it. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And so I said, oh, I could just, you know, the, and there was a, and I believe this guy, if I recall, one of the versions of the guy that I'm writing about, like in real life, one of the composite, they were shot. They were basically, wow. they were, they were, they were essentially adopted as a mascot by one, um, uh, what do I want to call it? Syndicate. Yeah. A rival yes. one, I think shot him in the nightclub. Like oh 50. my gosh. Yeah. And so, wow. and so I just, it's, it doesn't line up a hundred percent at all, yes. but it's taken from stuff that actually happened, you know, in history. And I was like, and of course it just makes sense. Why wouldn't it, you know, over here, the mafia has its, its pet boxers. Yes, right. Yes. You know, there's rumors and rumors. I'm like, well, why wouldn't there? You know, there's football players, 
you know, there's mafia guys sitting up in the sky boxes, you know, for the Dallas Cowboys or whatever. So, so the, so the bottom line is that even if it hadn't been, that was just something that I would have probably come up with just because it, it makes too much sense. But, but the, it, it takes on these uh, almost this like Telemachus and Odysseus <coughs> sort of relationship as he's looking at this, you know, this, this figure kind of that's been part of their history. I mean, because he's this yeah. famous wrestler uh, and there's, and he takes on this, uh, these kind of dimensions like, like Muzaki could take on a whole contingent of uh, Yakuza thugs um, and then do pretty well against them. It's, it's just, yeah, it takes on almost like a kind of a, a, a Greek epic um, scale or, 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 or a Greek tragic well, scale, maybe. Right, because he, I think somebody says time is a ring and he goes, no, it's a maze. Yeah. It's a maze of knives. Like it, that was yeah. his, that was his conception of time. Yes. And that you're basically trapped in it. You're trying to, and of course, what else is in a maze? A minotaur. So I mean, it's yes, but, yes. So essentially, there is a Greek element there. I because my thing is, I love I love to mix, especially when we're talking about um, action films. You know, basically fantasy. Yeah, I, mean, I love I love Japanese fantasy. I love their. I mean, the the um, all these. There are so many samurai films, and they're simply our westerns. Yes. Or our westerns yes. are simply samurai films. Yes. Right. But they they go back and forth. And of course, the Italians doing their thing. But the bottom line is we should all share this. We just have different we we, we use different um clothing. We clothe it differently. But it all boils down to the same thing. That's why these stories are so you can you that's why Star Wars is able to use Lucas is able to use the hidden fortress so easily. Yes. Good stories are good irrespective of their trappings they're simply mm -hmm. great that's why shakespeare is so easy to adapt yes. shakespeare hamlet works on us on a desolate space station or a decaying a station in a decaying orbit as well as it does you know in a castle i mean yes yeah right because it's the story that's the the homer you know homer's the iliad the odyssey work no matter what time period that's right that's it's right been, uh, that's been done as a, a crime guy getting out of prison and coming yeah. home to find yeah. out if, it's, if he's been in prison for 20 years or whatever, and he comes yeah. out and he's dealing with all the traitors and whatever it transcends the trappings. Yeah. And so when I was writing this, this doesn't transcend in that way. It's simply saying we all, uh, I'm talking to the people who enjoy these types of films and books and comics and things. And the people who, you know, enjoy them enough to make them. That's yes. who it wasn't really even so much. I wasn't really thinking about just the average reader. I figured the average reader would, you know, either they'll like it or they won't like it but this was sort of a love letter to a certain type of of uh of reader to you uh, uh, you've mentioned i know on twitter takashi miike oh yes and and how you i think in particular you were just saying that you, you know you you got to understand you need to see this and understand how much he like cares about his characters um i mean his stuff is bizarre and gruesome and grotesque did you do you do you feel like his work his films have had any um uh influence on your stories absolutely uh i would say that in general asian cinema has had a a disproportionate influence not on what i write about yes or even i don't think if, if i were like if i were never to talk about this i think and, and you, outside of um, Man With No Name, I don't think it's really all that obvious, but maybe Coleridge a little, but it informs so much of what I've done. Uh, and part of the way that it informs it is little things you might not think of, but like the absurdity, 
see the the Japanese cinema, and even even like other foreign cinema like Ingmar Bergman stuff, just absolutely stay almost stick in the tundra kind of seriousness and yet they'll do something like break like bergman used to break the fourth wall all the time yes and it will mock you for fault for, for basically buying into the meta narrative he's like in other words he'll be like oh you believed everything you've just watched huh kind of a thing yeah why do you believe it because well you're conditioned you're like we're all conditioned to to get certain things out of and all certain narratives uh we are trained to do this yes. tv trains us comics books train us how to consume them yes. uh the bottom line is, is what I got out of um, Asian cinema is it'll be just this dead serious narrative and then some kind of slapstick thing will happen. They create they treated it all with the same level of meticulous care. They yes. didn't. Yeah, they didn't say, well, this is just a jokey thing we put in. I mean, maybe some of them thought that, but they didn't treat it that way. That's not how I got. It. They're like, no, this is huh. equally important. This this pie in the face moment or this digression yeah. is just as important as the as the plot on rails because the thing is most fiction most popular you know if you want to sell it and if you want to have be invited to sell more there has to be a beginning a middle and an end it could yeah. be weird but there has to be a recognizable arc yeah the, the japanese are like the koreans are like uh, i mean maybe maybe yeah. we'll give you your arc <laughs> maybe we won't yeah uh, or maybe we'll maybe we'll we'll do something we'll 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 go off the beaten path and come back and come back to it at the last we'll swerve back onto the road at the last second i and they also show vulnerability see this is yeah. something that we do not get in a, in, in western part of it's cultural part of it's the filter i don't speak japanese so i'm sure i'm missing certain nuances but mm -hmm. in western in western literature and cinema unless it's self-consciously artistic it has a tendency to be very um you are it's very everything's programmatic this is your redemption moment this is where the yes. guy decides not to be a jerk anymore and he's he's gonna start you know he's been trapped you know, um michael fox has been trapped this town long enough being a jerk from the city he's gonna understand that everybody deserves human kindness and maybe he'll yes. save himself and here's the first scene where that happens is that the one with the pig like he's out in the country with the yeah pig? yeah he crashes and then he and then the judge says you've got to do community service that's of, it yes yes right but there's always and i'm not knocking hollywood but we, we see it in novels too there's a definable moment where yeah. okay here's where the montage him treating a kid spits up in his face probably or somebody is a dirty diaper you know the human moments we're going to give you a, as to, to curse here like in team america the motherfucking montage here we yes, go yes well the japanese do their share of it but their films that are less hollywood emulating have a tendency to show vulnerable moments that really are vulnerable and by that i mean if an action here like jason statham may have it be holding a kid like this like dirty die or arnold schwarzenegger but it's yes. played as a laugh like Whoa, it, who? it is always played as a laugh yeah he will never have his pants unzipped and his dong hanging out accidentally and go, oh, my God, I got to put it away. Or he'll never cry unless his dog yes. dies. He'll yes. never show any genuine emotion. He'll never like say this. You'll know, say something stupid to his girlfriend and then it doesn't get resolved. You just said something stupid and she's mad at you. In in Western cinema, everything has a purpose. There's nothing the camera lingers on that doesn't. There's no Chekhov's gun is everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Asian cinema, you don't always know where Chekhov's gun is. Yes. And there could be Chekhov's lapel. There could be Chekhov's <laughs> cufflinks lying there. And he's putting them on. You're like, okay, this is going somewhere. No, we're just yeah. showing you that this guy likes this. Yeah. People are allowed to have it's still, it's still stylized. It's cinema, but there's moments where they're human. 
there's moments where the hero is cowardly. Like they have no problem with the with the hero running out of bullets and running behind something, not like doing an action slide, but like, no, he's like, see ya. And he runs off. Yes. Yes. I picked up on that and I went, Oh, you can do that. You can do that. I, um, uh, my experience with, um, I guess, Asian cinema started with a cartoon called Battle of the Planets. Um, it was a, a ninja science team <laughs> Gachaman or G-Force sometimes it's called over here. But uh, yeah, it was, um, uh, I, I didn't know it was made in Japan and then dubbed over into, into English and brought over. But there was something about that series where I could see, hey, wait a second. There's like character arcs going on between episodes. These two our friends here, but they're a little something more in the next episode. I just knew there's something was going on there. And yeah. it wasn't like it, like with GI Joe, pretty much any or, or transformers or any episode can go in any order. It doesn't matter. It's fairly commercial, but the, right. the Japanese were doing something very different. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, you know, of course, anime is a, a, a huge thing in America now, because I think there's a, their approach to storytelling is just so, um, so different and so cohesive. And I'm not a, I don't privilege one thing over the other. I like to synthesize them. But then yeah. one other thing, I get off this, one other thing uh, that has changed about my writing because of that influence, they're not afraid to leave you hanging. They're not, and I don't mean like, did the killer kill them? We don't really know. But like, it's an either or. No, they, they'll have endings to their stuff where you have to, you watch this whole movie. It's fairly linear. The last 15 minutes, you have to rewatch it five times and go, wait a minute, what happened? Yes. Yeah. Because, yeah. because it'll take a, it'll take a 90 degree turn. And it's not something that I want to see every day. And it's certainly not something I want to cons- consistently write, yes. but it taught me that, oh, you don't like the ending, huh? You didn't get it. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. No, there's an ending, but it doesn't always have to be explained to you. And I, I yeah. really like that. Um, and, you know, some of your stories, that, and again, experimental is not really the word for it, I don't think, but um, some of your stories, you're, you're working so carefully uh, with, with the um, narrator or the, main, the protagonist's state of consciousness, um, and it's not necessarily linear or there's like two different levels of consciousness happening side by side, uh, and it really is, you know, where, where maybe it's challenging to understand what's going on in terms of the plot it's really it is about the experience of someone's consciousness not operating the way normal human consciousness operates and that to me is just fascinating i mean it's that i would think that's an enormously challenging to create something that evokes a um yeah that sort of altered state of mind i well first of all i got to give credit to brian evanson who Mm -hmm. if you ever read brian but yeah genius a genius writer yeah. i don't say that lightly he's a genius writer yes like stephen graham jones jeff ford john langan kelly lank you know i could go on there's 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 a few geniuses these are genius writers yes um and kelly link can do that yeah we'll do that where not necessarily specifically about altered consciousness but you have to go back and look like they'll do they'll do tricks with the writing where you go wait a minute the concept is that's a straight uh, Stephen Graham Jones is a big one. I and he actually has several stories where you must go back yeah. and read them again to know did that just happen? Yeah. No, that didn't happen the way I thought it did. I gotta go back and read the whole story again because uh, yeah. the key to it's way back here. Yeah. He is also quite capable of just giving you a plain old three-act structure. Yeah. Or seven act a lot of times it's a seven act structure. But the, the, the point is is that um 
yeah, I, uh, I don't think it's challenging to come up with the headspace because either you can do it or in other yes, words, yes. it's like saying, is it hard being 5'10"? You know, you are, <laughs> you are either, if you think a certain way, you think a certain way. What's difficult is communicating it uh, in any way that satisfies requirements uh, to be somewhat commercial. Because yes. I've written a few stories, that's why I like about short fiction, where I don't give a, I actually love it when people hate it in an anthology. I, I get just as <laughs> much pleasure, if not more vindictive pleasure from people getting yes. angry about one of my stories in an anthology than I do them, them liking it. I'll take either. I, you know, yes. indifference is our only enemy. But yes. when it comes to novellas, like standalone stuff, it, it can be weird, but I kind of feel like it's a bigger time investment for readers. Like I'm not very respectful of, I wasted 15 minutes reading that story and I got hosed. I'm like, well, you'll get over it. Yes. But I spent $25 and I don't understand this book and I spent all weekend. I have some empathy for that. Yeah, I had some yeah. sympathy. I'm like, I've never, I've never set out to try to, 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 to do anything to people. So, so if it's, um, if it's a bigger piece of work, I have a tendency to play more, not hundred percent, but a little bit more by the rules, but yes. in short fiction, I feel like, Rick flag time. If you're not going to, exp- yeah, if you're not going to try something different in short fiction, what, you know, I mean, well, there's lots 70... of people who are going to write ordinary, you know. Well, the problem is, is that your the game changes after you write, uh, you publish enough yes. because you're, di- I no longer am judged by this story, or that story. They're, no, people start going, yeah, but this story reminds me of that one or in that one you said, or I don't like this new stuff, or I love, I hate the old stuff, but the new stuff's great. Yes. They're, you're judging you're getting you're getting and of course i judge myself by what i've done i'm like you know i've written this story before mm, mm. do i rewrite it do i do i write it in a different way or do i just walk away from it yeah. um and so one of the things that you run into when you sell a bunch of stories i've sold you know i have sold four books of stories and i have i've finished about roughly two more books so i have about six books you you got to be really careful because you only have so many times because each of these stories is like a little micro universe it's much i I find it harder than writing a novel novels longer novel has a beginning a middle and an end yes the collection has anywhere from nine to twenty beginnings middle and right that is that becomes laborious yes so repeating yourself becomes a problem how many stories can you end you know on a cliffhanger how many stories can you end with a good guy and so that all comes into that all comes into play uh i don't want to tell the same stories the same way over and over and over again so i won't say that i ever wrote anything experimental but i certainly uh stretched myself i've written a few things that at first i wasn't comfortable writing and that i had to that i really had to work outside my comfort range to uh, to sell them and to, and to get any kind of pause, you know, for the stories to basically satisfy the requirement of being in a commercial, because, you know, pretty much everything I write is in some sort of commercial yep. venue. Yep. It can be weird, but yes. you've got to give them something, you've got to give them something to hang their hat on. And so yes. I, 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 I think I usually do that. There's usually yes. something in it where you may have disliked a bunch of things, but, oh, there was that action scene. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Is there a particular story that comes to mind as, as having gotten, just a, a, a significantly more negative feedback than, and then the others. Only um, n- negative. 
actually, I have only have one or two stories that have gotten consistently negative. Like I've been had plenty of stories like this is crap. Yeah. But like one or two that have excited like raw emotions in people. Yeah. Uh, one was a very straightforward story. Actually, one of my most straightforward stories was Catch Hell about the uh, couple. Yes. Who have lost a child. It's, it's a. What, what, what was it about that? I mean, what, what was it that bothered people? I mean, the end is it certainly has some it's a it's got a gruesome, grotesque ending. It's got well, occultic elements, but that's not unusual for your work. Yeah, and it very much intentionally plays by the rules of the Judeo-Christian axis. Uh, yes, yes. Right? In other words, transgressions have occurred. No one who participated is innocent. Just one of them is the couple is less evil than the other. And they're, they're, they're punished. They're punished yeah. for their, like explicitly punished for it. That was all intentional. That's one yeah. of the only stories I've ever written where I, I'm still kind of winking and nodding in that one, but it's written, it could have been written in the eighties at the height of the satanic panic. Yes, yes. It could have been, it could have been a, a, any number of paperback authors could have written that story. The only thing I think sets it apart from that is it's a literary story. I pay a lot more yeah. attention to character development and language. Yes. Like yes. I'm proud of the writing in it, but yes. Um, it was my, it, it, it was my, you know, I, I play around with different things. I played around with pulp, uh, from the fifties in X's for eyes. And I was playing yes. around with the good versus evil. And you're going to get punished for doing something, uh, you know, kind of, kind of genre. But what made people mad is your, is the submissiveness of the, uh, of the woman protagonist the POV yeah. character she her husband is sort of abusive to her yes yes but he's a, he, in a very realistic way like it's not this is where it departs from the 80s in the 80s he would have been slapping her and right you know making you know tying her up i mean doing just you know over the top instead it was more just like rough sex and just sort of dismissing it was, it was, yeah dismissive you know, and demeaning yeah and like when they had sex it was definitely you know he didn't hurt her or anything but it was yeah. like she she might not even been there. It could have been a, a prostitute or something. Yes. And people got really angry about that. Wow. Even though I think it's pretty explicit why she permits it. Like you find out toward the eldest spoil for people. You find yeah. out, although I don't come out and just say it, but it's right there in the text. That essentially, she's permitting this. She, I deserve this. It's her, huh. it's her hair shirt. She's putting up with his bullshit yeah. because she thinks, and this is based on a real case. This really happened. She dropped her baby off a, a bridge. Oh, and wow. the question is, did she do it intentionally or not? Yes. This happened in, I believe, Canada. A woman stood over. She had postpartum depression, they believe. And she, oh, a kid, wow. and the kid fell up 70 feet or whatever. But her lawyer yeah. was like, she didn't mean to it. The baby slipped. How are you going to prove that? Because she didn't throw it. She just like it fell out of her hands. And so I took it a step further. The woman's not even sure. Yes. Yes. Like, you know how it is in your pet. Did I do that on purpose? Did yes. I? So. Um, that really upset people that whole, all of that upset. Wow. Wow. And so I've been praised for my, uh, my women, my female characters. That's one where, and I've actually women like that story. Like, Oh, I've been wow. thought about throwing my kids off a bridge, but no, it was more <laughs> just, um, it really made people, I, I actually look at, despite what people say about it. Yes. My feeling over time, it really has less to do with what they're saying about it and what they're feeling and what they were feeling is that's, I was very successfully, indicting people with that story because yes. a lot of people i think there's a lot of parents who have not necessarily seriously entertained doing something sure. similar but it went through their head and yes. people are trapped in their guilt of do, would never want to admit 
to themselves that, you know, I thought about when my kids slipped under the bath, that water one time, how life would be so much. <gasps> I can't even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't even think about it, but fantasizing about being free of the, resp- the, the, yeah. the, con- the enormous burden in yeah. so many different ways of a, a spouse of children of parents, I guess, I suppose as well. But, but, but that one, uh, absolutely. I've gotten the most volatile, wow. um, angry or venomous kind of comments yes. about it that's because, fascinating yeah it's but you know what it means it worked yeah uh, it, it yes. could also they could also be right i might have done a terrible job representing a woman going through what she was going through i don't i don't know yeah. but i do know that at least part of it though is it made people really uncomfortable that, yes that a mother would there's this sacred there's this idea that yes that motherhood sacred like in other words that it's like indemnifies people against being horrible people or having horrible yeah. moments lapses when we have a whole history chock a block full of people driving their kids into lakes throwing them off bridges right yeah. i don't need to i mean the bottom line yeah. is we're fallible and that was the story wasn't i think i think the, the other possibility is sometimes when you write convincingly and it doesn't matter whether it's because i've written about gay people yeah uh, good and tremendum which was a yeah but I've also had gay people be be evil, be be villain, villainous. Yeah. But the bottom line is, you always run the risk uh, of of incurring wrath, righteously or not. Yeah. When you portray people accurate, not accurately, but I should I say convincingly, convincingly, Convince, convincingly yep. of yep. being bad. Yeah. Because either you, and it's possible that, you, that 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 I'm guilty of this, but but they have a tendency to go, you're making a statement about, like in the, in that story, women. Yes. Like this is how women are, or this is how gay people are. This is how, this is how, uh, you know, uh, anybody, right. This is how loggers are. Yeah. When, when really what I'm just saying is this is how this person is, this is what this person, this is what this person did, but no, it's, you know, the bottom line is I wouldn't want to be indemnified from criticism, uh, for writing. Yes. I just, you know, don't tell me what I can or can't write. You have no right. And, um, you know, uh, that's, that's it. I'll take the lumps for, um, you know, if you didn't like it for whatever reason. Right. Fine. And that's not even that you failed in, in an attempt. They just, you may have succeeded marvelously and they don't like what you did. It hurts. Well, it bothers them tremendously. I am completely open to the idea that I messed it up. Yeah. My point, my point is that I, I have my ideas about what's going on. Yeah. I don't know. The, the point is, is really the only sin anyone can ever commit against an artist is to is to be unfair and, and yeah, unfair in yeah. the sense of you know trying to bully them into not into not doing uh you know essentially book burning kind of a stuff yes I, yes criticism doesn't fall under that but you know yeah. if you write something and you get it wrong or people think you get it wrong it doesn't matter right yeah uh, you get to hear it so yeah. Yeah. i've never taken it personally even when it gets personal i i try to only take things personally when they when they're explicitly personal you are a jerk Yes, not yes. that story was terrible okay yeah. <laughs> it may be right or you, or you don't know how to x y or z yeah. you may be right i mean that's that, that, that's true we writing's hard yes. this is the thing like uh, i think somerset mom or no it was ambrose beers one of those guys said that writing is is one of those it's, it's a thing that it's an it's a, a, a occupation that's that's much harder for for writers than it is for people who who don't who don't write yes yes <laughs> Let me ask, uh, I, I want to ask about one more story, and then I've got some questions from folks out on Reddit sure. and Twitter to ask you, and then we'll wrap up. Um, so the story, More Dark. I, I learned about this because Paul Tremblay, 
put it on his list of the five best horror short stories that you can read for free online on uh, shortlist.com. Um, and I, I get now that it, it is in some ways strongly satirical. Um, but when I first read it, I didn't know that. I just took it at face value. I didn't know that it was referring to, you know, kind of sneakily referring to people who are real people um, in the, in the uh, horror writing industry. Um, and I found it not knowing that it was somewhat satirical. I found it just unnerving, horrifically grim and really just kind of a transformative story in my, in, in my time as a reader. Uh, and I look at it now and think it's, it's, it's pretty funny as it, as a work of satire. And at the same time, it's just also disturbingly bleak. Um, and that yeah. you could pull off both of those in the same story is just fascinating. I'll, I'll say that in particular, listening to Ray Porter narrate this story in, in, um, in the audiobook version of <coughs> The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All and hearing him say that uh, Mandibole's refrain, something worse, and with a guttural sound, something worse. It's, it is almost too much to take. Tell, tell me about just why you wrote this story and, and maybe what it means to you now in hindsight, uh, you know, I guess eight years after it was published. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. And Ray Porter is, oh, he's so good. Unbelievable. It's a performance. I'm going yeah. back and listening to an Imago sequence now. I, I don't know anyone who does a performance of the short stories like he's an actor on stage. It's, it's unbelievable. No, and he, you know, he expressed to me that he really genuinely, you know, because they don't always work. I picked him. I was I was mm. able to pick him and and William Demerit who, who yes. voices Coleridge yes. from a, a small group. But I was I listened and there were such great voices. I've been really lucky most of the time. Yeah. Um, but so give him his due. I mean, he. Yeah. It, but I guess he really did enjoy those stories. He told me that he really, you know, he would have done a great job anyway. But it, it he, he and Demerit both. Demerit really likes Coleridge and 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 Ray really liked the horror stories. Yeah. I think he's a horror guy. I mean, he's voicing yes. Dark Side. And it's yeah. You know, I'm so happy for him, but he deserves it. Oh, and yeah, um, he plays a number of characters in um, uh, Dirk Mags's um, Sandman audio out of the from the Neil Gaiman comics. He's, he's oh, just kind he? of a Swiss Army knife character. He plays a lot of different voices. Um, but yeah, kind of, again, playing in that dark fantasy horror world. Yeah, uh, he's um, like was made, you know, like that guy was out there waiting. For, for, you know, in other words, if there was someone that was going to give voice to these characters, that was the guy. Yes. Or the stories were written for him. You know, maybe yes. that would have been yes. a better way to put it. Is I, I, I wrote these parts for you, my friend. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> and you you've never think, met him, have you? No, we've just okay. talked a little bit online. But um, wow. super, super sweet. And like I said, really good. Yeah. And I, I'm very lucky. But I can't go into all that about that story. There's some a lot of personal stuff in that story. Yes. Yes. But I felt. I had never, I had never written one of these before. And I just said, a lot of people do them. It's like a rite of passage. Every author, like at some, some point writes about his fellow authors. The Jack Herringa uh, book, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, just around, category. I'm sure all the literary, I'm sure all the greats have done it. Yeah. You know, I'm sure Hemingway has some sly references to whatever, but I mean, you yeah. know, like the poets do it all the time. They write poems for each other and stuff. Yeah. Pound, what was it? Pound and Elliot, you know, yes, back and yes. forth. Enemies, friends, whatever. Uh, so one thing I don't like most of them uh, in, in genre, I don't like most of them. I, Wagner did one that I think was talking about his contemporaries. I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically 
they're, they're contemporaries, and then one of them has bestseller success. It's about vampirism. The one that becomes more successful wastes away because essentially the audience is a vampire. Fame, yeah. fame bleeds yes. him dry. But you know from the way I know from the way he spoke about it, that story was about him and somebody else yes. or, or yes. two other authors he knows. And I loved it because it, it worked. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that there was this meta narrative. You could not, you could be completely ignorant of that and just enjoy this story about how fans yes. of vampire. Yes. And so I said, when I write one of these, it has to be, it's a little more on, in, on the nose and in your face than his, because I, 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 I decided to go over, overboard with it, but I want it to work as a horror story also. Yes. And some people feel like it does. So that, that, that's good. I uh, absolutely. I mean, it really, it was, it, it's just terrifying. Um, what uh, this, the internal state of the narrator as he's getting more and more inebriated. Yeah. Um, he's going, uh, I mean, there's something, there's something happening there. I'm completely convinced by what he's experiencing. So him just stepping outside of the, um, the, the Kremlin bar uh, and there are kids waiting in line for a jazz show. And I'm afraid yeah. someone's going to, you know, take their stiletto heel off and stab them through the head. I, I'm just, I feel the inebriation with it. It's, it's very, very tense the whole way through. And then Elle's, Elle's friends, his little uh, entourage, it's like some weird stuff's going on that I didn't really, I just knew I didn't get everything going on. And I was scared for the character, for the narrator. Almost all of it's based on stuff that's happened. As you, you know, I wrote that right after my divorce. Yes. Um, I was yes. not in a very, I was not in a very good place. Yes. But what I've noticed is my frame of mind has nothing, nothing to do substantially with how it's going to come out. In other words, I can write pretty much. I it may be different. Yes. But like it'll be, it'll be well, you know, as well as I'm capable of writing, whether I'm upset or not feeling yes. it. I've never noticed like my feelings about a story having a lot to do with how the story comes out. Interesting. Uh, except, except sometimes I'm right about how it will be received. Okay. Like sometimes I'm like, oh, this is going to do well. I know this yes. will do well. But no, um, I was going through some times, but there's multiple things going on there. Uh, I admire Thomas Ligotti and mm. I'm not a big, but I'm not a big fan of, of, of how a lot of people, and I don't lay this on him. I'm not going to lay it on anyone specifically, but I've heard it. Well, his, his mental depression is like a superpower. I'm like, Fuck that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I have mental depression. Yeah. I do not let's not let's not go there. Let's not yeah. valorize mental illness. Yeah. Um, and I'm not talking about his his viewpoint about antinatalism, which I think could be argued as sort of a product of mental. I mean, almost everybody who's antinatalist, I'm dying of a brain tumor. They like in, later, like what was it Schopenhauer? Somebody later in life as they were like suffering. Oh, I wish I was never born. Well, of course, you're suffering. Yeah. But we all cry from our mamas, yes. whether they're alive or dead, if we're if we're in pain. The yes. bottom line is, so I'm not really talking about that. I'm just talking about this valor, you know, people valorize mental illness. Like, well, maybe that's what's so great about his writing. I'm like, no, no, he's a great writer because he's a great writer. Yeah. Um, but even if that's the case, let's not, I wouldn't wish what he goes through a different thing, but I wouldn't wish mental depression on anybody yes. for the sake of their art. That's and I think it's a very dangerous. I think when people associate art the mythology that well if you suffer that's how you do it yeah uh, or you know if you're a murdering piece of crap well, that means you'd be a great writer yeah let's not do yeah. that even yeah. if even if even if all these things a, a lived life if you have the talent you're going to have things to write about but there's plenty of people who've never been to war are not murderers don't have mental depression to, to at least to any kind of like clinical degree who write beautiful 
wonderful, valuable fiction. Yes. Uh, yes. You don't, you know, this whole, when I was growing up, it was, well, you, you, you got to be a druggie alcoholic to really be a real serious writer. Yeah. And I think that's all damaging. I think yes. that's the wrong message for kids. I think it's one thing, I actually, looking at Twitter and about how much people project, uh, practice reject demand, see like, was it something I wore today? Is that why I got rejected? That I think how many honors are propping up that were otherwise rational people? Yeah. yeah. Allegedly, I think that the human brain is susceptible to, uh, you know, basically bad programming, bad yes. code. Don't yes. let's not feed it bad code. And the yeah. bad code's not <laughs> admiring Ligotti. Yeah. And it's not even Ligotti saying, well, maybe we're better off if we weren't born. It's valorizing, you know, if, you, if you're sick, somehow that's going to make you a superhero. And I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like that. It's not to say that you're not equal or that there's nothing wonderful about trying to overcome adversity. It's, I don't like the idea though, that you have to be this thing. And that's why you are. Yes. Because to me, that's the same thing as, is dismissing people for having a disability. Uh, well, you can't be trusted because you have mental depression. It's really no different than, well, you're particularly suited to some, you know, to some activity because you've got mental depression. They're just the antipodes of a really unsavory line mm. of thinking yes, as far as I'm yes. concerned. So that was part of my motivation. Interesting. It wasn't a slap at Ligotti, although yeah. initially it was more so because that's easier to write. It's yeah. easier just to, to make it. No, it was a slap at the people who are kind of a, form the cult of Ligotti. Yes. And I don't mean fans. I mean, the cult of Ligotti, like he knows the secrets. I'm like, no, he's the dude. And he works in Florida, the Gale, you know, yes. textbook company. And he, he has some ideas for stuff. We're all, we all, you know, we're all people. Uh, yep. We're not gurus. And, and yep. the other thing that happened though, is maybe more. So that was part of it. The other thing. Yep. That was Wall Wallace on, Stevens sold insurance. Right. Yeah. That's the bottom line. Uh, yep. The other thing that was going on, and I'm not going to go too far into this. Please, yeah, of course. I, I feel like I have to be honest. It was also one one aspect of the story was to take a shot at uh, a writer who had bullied another writer. The guy bullied a, 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 a lady who was up and coming writer at the time. And I'm not going to go far into it because everybody's yeah. got their side. I perceived it as bullying and he did it in print. He, he basically oh. killed off. She had lost a family member. He immediately put that family member in a story. And oh, they were recently wow. murdered in a story. Ah. And then, of course, when everybody who knew about it went, hey, uncool. Oh, Pip, Pip, I would never do such a thing. It was a yeah. coincidence. And I was like, well, let's see how you like it. So yeah. I put the, yeah, yeah. So I basically put the boots to the guy in the story. And uh, everybody, as well as deals where if you don't know, no harm. Nobody knows. Yeah. It's only for the people who knew. And he did not like it. He was very upset to this day. He wants to find me from what wow. I've heard. And I wow. laugh. I, I'm cackling to this day. So yeah. it's petty. <laughs> but you know what? When I was a kid, I had a glass eye and I got yes. in a lot of fist fights. Yes. I got pushed around. I have a little special sore spot under my saddle blanket for yes. people I perceive as being bullies. And I felt like writing about someone's dead sibling who's just passed away and putting them in a story uh, and also killing the author in the story too, if I recall, it was like yeah. a double murder um, and naming them the same or almost identical name. Oh, I felt, oh. I, yeah. I felt like that. Well, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. Is there anything more poetic than doing something to them in a story? Yeah. So, the, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there you go. That was okay. the, that was the, uh, and what happened is it got published and there it sat for two or three years and nobody said anything. 
And then the Ligotti board, somebody at the Ligotti board went, hey, uh, wait a minute. I think that he's said, wait a minute, all these people. Oh, wow. And they figured oh, it wow. out. And then, and then once you knew, it was like the decoder ring. Once you knew, yes. it, you were like, oh. And they were, I was amazed how accurate, because I only used initials for a lot of yes. them. Everybody knew who, including people I've never met. They were like, yeah, that's so-and-so and the other. Yes. Yes. Yes, it yes. was. Well, maybe, maybe. Names have been changed. Protect the guilty. Uh, bar- only barely, though. Um, uh, okay, from the mailbag. Um, so uh, I, I told, so uh, yeah, I posted on Reddit and Twitter that I was going to interview you and asked if anyone had questions. So uh, Mensch01 says, I'm interested in the new Isaiah Paulridge <coughs> and the new short story collection focusing on fantasy. Do you just want to say real quick the, uh, the items that you're working on that you haven't already mentioned? Yeah, there's not anytime soon going to be another Coleridge novel because yeah. the, they're not going on with that. There will be a Coleridge novella. Yeah. Uh, the, fan, the, the fantasy collection is probably two or three years away, but I'm working okay. on it. There will be a new collection. I could send it in now, but basically I'll send it in to my agent probably late this year okay. and then we'll, then we'll figure it out. Um, and the fan, and the other thing I'm working on, the, the main thing I'm working on is a, is a fantasy horror novel set in that universe. Yes. Yes. Well, um, the, um, the, uh, Coleridge novella, do you, any idea where, I mean, is, are you targeting that for a, like a collection, a chat book? Yeah. I mean, okay. I'm going to, it's going to be an original story in the collection. Great. Very good. Very good. Um, let's see. Uh, Jfish SF says, does Laird plan any more straightforward noir without any supernatural elements? Yeah, but I don't know how that's going to work out. 20, you know, 20 seconds or less. I want to do a horror collection that the horror is naturalistic. It could be inexplicable, yes. but it's like people go missing yes. or there's a sighting, but we, in other words, there's not like an overt supernatural element. It's stuff that like it would be mystery, uh, like like unsolved mysteries kind of stories. Yes, yes, gotcha. But, Thank you. Mm-hmm. Plane crashes, good. people trapped in the wilderness, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. L- less. Uh, I was uh, uh, rereading in a cavern in a canyon, mm. and and there's nothing supernatural as far as we can tell, but it's something unnatural. I mean, from right. a human perspective, um, e- e- less straightforward than that. Would you say? No, yeah, it would be it would be far less straightforward, okay. and it would and some of the stories would obviously deal with, if not mafia crime, it would definitely be like the crime that I encountered in Alaska, which was local business owners and stuff who were essentially little mop little mobsters of their wow fiefdoms. Yes, yes. Um, Grimwood CT asks, <laughs> uh, does Laird shoot darts? If so. Cricket, X-01, or American darts. For some reason, I thought he'd alluded to playing darts in an interview, but I can't find it. That's bizarre because yeah. I don't think that I did. <laughs> but um, when I was a kid, everybody had a dartboard and yeah. we played darts in the house all the time. Yes. yes. I assume it was just American darts. It was like the same thing they're playing in the bars all over the place. We just had a, a dartboard and the rings and that was, we played Parcheesi, Monopoly, darts. But cool. as an adult, no. The only thing I played as an adult at bars would be pool or sh- um, shuffleboard. Yeah, yeah. I have I have no context for the the dart question, yeah. but the Grimwood CT wanted to know. He did also. Grimwood CT also asks: Is the broadsword an homage to any particular hotel? No, but it 
it's set in a neighborhood in Olympia that I used to walk past all the time that I wondered if it had been a hotel that would have been converted. So yes and no. Okay. Um, it's the place that I, I imagine should have, should have been there. Nice. Um, Jay Johnson asks, uh, Jay Johnson, also a, a writer asks, yeah. do you find it challenging to balance artistic exploration with the craftsmanship of good storytelling? Does experimenting with narrative happen at the expense of readability? I think, I think we actually talked about that. I think we spent an hour talking about that. Yes. Yes. It can. And you know, it's all in the eye of the beholder. Uh, I, lament over stuff all the time other people have variable opinions i overall the reception for swift to chase was really good it didn't do quite as well as it might have just because there wasn't as the publisher was much smaller and it came out in a soft cover and blah 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 but um the my fans and also there's the fans who didn't you know they wanted more lovecraftian but overall it's it's, it's like it's very i'm very proud of it and I'm, overall the reception has been yeah this is a good book it just didn't, it's still, it's in print. It's, I'm getting royalties on it. All nice. my stuff's in print. Nice. So um, yeah, Jay, I uh, it can, it's always a risk, mm -hmm. but I, but I think, you know, obviously you have to weigh staying alive and eating versus pursuing your art, but I'm primarily a writer to be a writer. I only want to make money. The only reason I care about making money writing is so I can do more writing. Yes. If yes. somebody gave me a million dollars tomorrow and said, that's it. You don't ever have to sell another story. You can yeah. do whatever you want. I would do whatever I want. I would, there would be, you know, there'd be some, there would be a few things I would experiment with that I haven't yeah. done because I'm like, I keep putting it off. Not because I, I'm too scared to do it, but I'm like, yeah, I'll get to that thing that no one's going to like after yeah. I pay the rent. <laughs> so, yes, so yes. I think last, the last thing about that, one thing that I feel comfortable that I've been able to do, especially with the Coleridge novels, because they're so explicitly commercial, is that I don't look back in shame at them. I don't go, oh, I did that for the money. No, I like uh, John D. McDonald. I like Parker, or uh, yeah, uh, Robert Parker. Robert B. Parker, yeah. Yeah, I like straightforward. That, there are other types of writing that I like. I love Elmore Leonard, mm -hmm. a little bit more in the middle. I love um, all these different, all these different writers. And I'm like, I wrote something, I compromised. I wrote something I wanted to, I wanted to write something commercial, but I wanted to write something that I would be proud of later, or yes. at least not go, oh, you know, you, you basically just did that only for money. No, yeah, I, wrote, I wrote, yeah. Yeah, I wrote three books the way that would, uh, that hopefully future Laird would go, yeah, okay. Yeah, yes. good. you know, that, that was good. And so that's all I would say about that is I only compromise to the degree that I have to. Uh, I, I feel like I take a risk every time I send a story in because there's always something in it that someone's going to go, what? And that was me going, oh, yeah, it just occurred to me. I like yeah. that. <laughs> okay, my last question. This is my, my mailbag question. <laughs> if a pop artist were dead set on writing a song about you, who, and it could be positive or negative, which pop artist would you want it to be? About me, personally? Yes, yes. Well, if I, thought, if I had time to think about it, I'd probably come up with a different. Right now, li living would be Matthew Good. Yes, yes. The Canadian, yep. uh, he was of the Matthew Good band. I think yep. I'd be nervous because he's kind of acerbic. Yes, yes. I, I, uh, my follow up would be, well, no, yeah, I'll just stick with that. Matthew okay. Good. Any other, what would the follow up have been? Oh, it's going to sound, sound kind of funny, but, um, somebody like Eminem, like a real really? poppy. Yeah, okay. I'd be curious to see what old Eminem, because Eminem is a lot more depth to Eminem than, uh, yeah. You know, but 
but but I Matthew Goodbye, you know, would be would be the one that I would be cool. the most interested in. Very good, very good. Um, well, uh, yeah, this has been terrific. Thank you for spending so much time with me, and uh, we'll put this up online. And uh, uh, when I have some time, I'll probably transcribe some of it as well for um, for Reddit's purposes. Um, well, so yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, and we are excited to see some more fiction coming. Uh, down the pipeline in the near future and uh, best, uh, best uh, wishes uh, for your, uh, uh, you know, for the rest of 2021. Thank you. It's got to be better than 2020. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I appreciate being on also. Thanks to uh, the people, the mailbag uh, writers sent stuff in for the mailbag. Appreciate that. Cool.